Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we're going to be taking a look at Marauders 24, It's Jeff Infinity Comic 1 through 4, Trial of Magneto number 2, our first coverage of the second issue of the series, before turning our attention to the Mighty Valkyries number 5, the finale on this series, which evidently closes out three runs, Jane Foster Valkyrie. King in Black, The Return of the Valkyries, and now finally, The Mighty Valkyries. First up is Marauders 24. Now, the team really seems to feel this is leading to some sort of inevitable conclusion, and it seems to be like a line-wide consensus, and we're still really enjoying a lot of it, but it does seem like Marauders maybe feels like it's part of an X-Men era that's transitioning into something new, and Marauders is having trouble figuring out the pace of that, and it's so interesting that that would be the case when Jerry Dugan is the guy responsible for setting the pace in so many ways over on X-Men. But either way, the team has a great time reading it and discussing it. It leads to a lot of challenging ideas about the X-Men as it stands. We hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you enjoyed what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to check out our other channels over on YouTube and Twitter over at X is for Podcast. Welcome back to another segment of X is for Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Marauders 24, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Phil Noto, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Marauders 24 really feels like the transition book, flipping us from Earth pirates into space pirates. And I think this issue can best be summed up as if if this was if this was a meme, this would be the Michael Jordan last dance meme with someone in the top panel saying Corsair is the sexiest space pirate in the galaxy. And then the little Michael Jordan one having an Emma Frost head on the bottom saying, and I took that personally. <laughs> with if me today would... go, go. with me today is Drusifer. Drew, tell us, say hi and tell us where we can find you. Hey guys, I'm I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-B-H-E-R-3. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram at Twitter at Comic underscore Canary. Hey everybody, I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And if Marauders 24 was an episode of Community, it would be the paintball episode, the second part, where we transition from a Western to Star Wars. And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and asleepattheWheel.com. And for the next year, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate and at joshwheel.org. Hashtag retire Rubio. Hashtag retire Rubio. Very, very strong Star Wars vibes all throughout this book. I mean, also in a real to community and that specific community episode, I feel like you can basically imagine Kate Pride taking off her red jacket and being like, oh, it's Star Wars time and deciding to dress like Han Solo the way Abed did. Immediately, yeah. without without hesitation. There is mm-hmm. no other Han Solo. Yeah, her look was was perfect. <laughs> 
So to me, and I mentioned, this feels very much like a transition book. Um, In the green room, we were talking about this a little before we started, that we know the X line post-Inferno is going to go through some major shuffles. Duggan is obviously on the flagship book, which got a jump start uh, on X-Men. If I had to guess, based on reading this, this feels very much like a table-setting issue. It reminds me of, I would say, the end of Hickman's Fantastic Four or Dan Slott's Amazing Spider-Man, where, you know, they read... They reached the climax of the main story they wanted to tell before the final issue, right? And so for like Hickman's Fantastic Four, the big culmination of his massive story was 604. And then he had about seven issues left that were really about kind of like resetting the family and putting them in a more friendly, accessible space for the next writer. And also positioning all of the other characters like T'Challa and Namor into where he needed them for his upcoming Avengers run. You know, in um, in Dan Slott's Amazing Spider-Man, I'd say that by the time you reach the end of the clone conspiracy, you could really see that he stopped killing people and was bringing people back to life. He was putting people back in their original bodies. He was, you know, he had made Peter rich and now Peter was like, the company was gone. Like he was bringing everything kind of back, like issue by issue to kind of a more norm where you expect characters places to be resetting the table for the next writer to come in and and have them, you know, where you'd want to start your amazing Spider-Man story. This Marauders kind of feels like that. It feels like Marauders is making the transition from Earth Pirates to Space Pirates. And this is, you know, this is Duggan setting the table for whoever is going to have the Space Pirates book come January. Um, And also, I just have a very strong headcanon that, you know, Emma was up in the polycule and someone said that Corsair was the sexiest space pirate in the galaxy. It may or may not have been Corsair himself. And Emma took that personally and realized that all she had to do was be a space pirate to become the sexiest space pirate in the galaxy galaxy the most effortlessly sexy also i love emma's i just want to take a second to acknowledge how fabulous emma's outfit is for this issue like i love her Mm -hmm. like baggy pants tucked into the boot and like the modest top like i just i love this era where emma frost is always wearing white i'm glad she's not in a black costume anymore and always changing her outfits like it's one of my favorite little silly things it it reminds me very much of the Gen X era where they said, all right, she's going to be teaching a school. So no more Fredericks of Hollywood. But they made her outfits true and sexy and boss bitch without making them in any way like conservative or out of character. Right. And yeah, no, Noto nails that here. Even going as far in the final scene as putting her in like a short sleeve white turtleneck. Right. Or cowl neck or, or, or whatever that like super cash. That might be the most like modest, casual Emma Frost outfit I've ever seen. The one that she gets ejected out into space in. But yeah, so we're, we're getting we're getting a different Emma. We also have Phil Noto back on art. Phil Noto, I believe, did one of our issues of Marauders earlier around the kind of swords time. We know that he's good, good friends. They're besties with Jerry Duggan. They did uh, an indie book together before this. Obviously, Phil Noto did the art for all 12 issues of Duggan's Cable Run. It doesn't have the colors of the like beautiful cover that Dodderman and Wilson did. It doesn't have those Wilson colors because Noto colors his own thing, which would be a super nice, like for the record, if we're getting Space Pirates in January, I super hope the artists are Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson. It does have a really nice separate feel where like Noto doesn't work as well in like Pirates of the Caribbean-y pirate, but, but his art definitely fits much more Star Wars-y space pirate. What were your thoughts on the, the art transition here in Marauders 24? 
I thought it was a little wobbly. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Phil Noto's. I, when I see his art, I instantly go back to Ten of Swords and the the wedding issue with Bay and and Doug. Like I love the way he does faces. I love the way he he conveys expression. I love the simplicity of it. However, for this you know space cantina kind of showdown situation, I didn't think the art was well matched, well suited for this environment. If we're talking about uh, artists in space. Simone De Mayo is my go to. He's the the artist on we only find them when they're dead and and coloring has a lot to do with that book too and i'm not sure who the colorist is off the top of my head really immersive experience that you feel like the darkness of space and you feel the glow of the lights and the instruments and whatever just touching on the simone de mayo art in that i was having a conversation with steven um discord last week and that book came up as i think one of our examples where we were talking about like the best like impact of like colors and lettering like mm-hmm. the colors and like few books that you think of of like what do you think of as like great letters or man the lettering and the colors on that like usually usually we walk away and it's like story or art and um yeah like and that works so well when we're talking like space cowboy space pirates for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah i would even say like no I talk about them a lot, but like Pepe Loraz and Marte Gracia um, would have been good on like this, especially with uh, Marte's um, like coloring style. His he has the very like neons, um, you know, a lot of blacks. Like I'm thinking of like the party scenes, Hawks Pox, like that kind of coloring vibe with space stuff. I think that's kind of like the vibe I like to see with space. I so okay, so I for people that know me know I'm a hardcore Star Wars fan, like old school Star Wars. Like I grew up reading the old comic books, the old books, like. To me, it felt, I don't know if it was done purposely or not, but it really felt like those old Star Wars comics where the the way it was drawn, the way the colors were done, the colors were definitely done a lot more modern, but the, like the outlines, the sketching, the inks, it really reminded me. The backgrounds. Of, yes. The backgrounds felt very much like, like old school Star, Star Wars, Wars comics. Like very yes. old school sci-fi because sci-fi comics was a very niche thing up until recently. And it really gave that homage to that old school style. And so while I thought that for an X-Men book, it didn't necessarily fit. For a sci-fi book, I felt it really fit. So I was kind of torn between the artistic choices because I love sci-fi. Like sci-fi is my my first love and seeing that I really enjoyed. But then some of the faces kind of threw me off a little bit because it's just like, yeah, this is real sci-fi kind of old school, but it didn't necessarily fit, especially with Kate. Like Kate's faces on a couple like panels kind of was a little wonky for me. That was a big, that was the first thing Drew and I were talking about in the green room today was the look of Kate in this book. Because for me, it it's hard to pinpoint like or say what my criticism is because Noto's checking all the boxes technically. Like he's doing the hair right. Like he's, he's measuring this. Like she's got that like kind of lesbian swagger, the star of David, like all of these things are exactly like he's clearly read and knows and his intent 
intention is there, but there's a, a feel to it that's off, like where even just looking at, and, and Drew pointed this out to me, the curly hair he draws for Lourdes and the back pages and the final pages of the story, like looks so much better than the kind of half mullety hair helmet thing that like Kate is walking around with that yeah. like it just the feel of it, it doesn't, she doesn't feel, she feels kind of boxy almost yeah. like JRJR boxy and it's it's an aesthetic that just kind of affects the feel of her in the scenes even though she's written right and like all the little technical boxes are checked in the way she's designed she didn't like just become like a j scott campbell drawing or something all of a sudden like she's the 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 boxes are being checked here's my head canon if she cut her own bangs and it looks like that's what she's done then we're just a few weeks away from her finally coming out of the closet. Now, <laughs> I would take that headcanon one step further. I feel called and out. Say that, <laughs> and say that that is exactly like New Mutants Dead Souls, where that was specifically their design for Ileana, was that like she decided to cut her own bangs and it looks hideous, but like she likes it. And so that's what it is, because fuck y'all. And that would totally be an influence on Kate choosing to cut her own bangs now. Totally. It doesn't even make sense because, like, she has curly hair, but her bangs are still straight, which is, like, not the way. As someone works. with curly hair who has cut their own bangs. She's straightening her big bangs. <laughs> like, you don't <laughs> want to do it. Don't do it. Just be from... <laughs> She's she really straightening the bangs. Straightening yeah. her bangs. Yeah. Because, like, as a chaotic pan that did that right before she came out, <laughs> I can say you don't want to do it. I ended up with the reverse Bieber, is what we called it. Yeah. Just- I feel like I feel like <laughs> Emma like just like move. Emma just like throws her hands in the air, like whatever. It's Kate. Like this is good as it's gonna get. I can only do so much. I can. Kate me and Jumbo the can only, only do so much. Emma would let walk into a bar with her with that haircut <laughs> if anyone else showed up with that haircut emma would be like no child it's like my no, no daughter of mine will be wearing this but she with kate she's like i need to let her express herself because she's just gonna rebel more she's my rebellious child i just need to let this happen <laughs> now that we're talking about the emma and kate of it all i want to get to yes i agree with everything you're saying josh that this does feel like a, a transitional issue there's you know often criticism about this book being the kate and emma show period and i think that's so valid i I mean and i enjoy the kate and emma show to be clear like and i think dugan writes a wonderful emma like emma calling something unfortunate or dreadful or whatever like pump that shit into my veins he he has such a good hand at her voice specifically and at their relationship but goddamn like give me an issue that is bishop you know in the at the port solving the mystery or whatever of the sheriffs that have been killed like i need a little bit more from our supporting cast because they basically feel like extras and it's just such a missed opportunity and i think bright things are on the horizon for bishop like according to some of the solicits we've seen like hopefully he gets his shine i'm out of breath asking for the bishop battle academy like that was mentioned and never exists fair to say that bishop is probably going to be involved in the mercator mr m in other world upcoming story eventual story that has been teased multiple times in data pages seeing as how that character's sole appearances were in uh district m and mutopia x which were bishop-led titles i really want to agree like i was relatively disappointed
disappointed we did not see Bishop doing the mystery thing. I was like, I was expecting it, like from what he was doing and not seeing that I was disappointed. And as much as like, I totally love Kate and Emma, I do want to see the other ones. Like I am a Pyro fan. I <laughs> I want to see more of him. I am a Bishop fan. I am an Iceman fan. Let's let's see a little bit more of them interacting. Yeah, and we were promised like that. That that's what we were gonna get. Is Marauders was supposed to be the book of them doing like the black the under or the black market dealings and saving mutants from countries that did uh, want to. It was originally the gay pirates book. Yeah, exactly. No, we were we and, were sold gay pirates, and that was yeah. and that we got the Emma and Kate show, which is fine, but that's not what was really solicited. And like, uh, it's it's. I I really hope that like whatever happens with Marauders, you know, it is like a ensemble, more of an ensemble book as like, I think most X-Men books should be like, and, and I want to respectfully disagree a little bit because for me, and I know, you know, we, we did all our Star Wars comps earlier, you know, I, I want to make a Star Trek comp on here. So this book in the kind of setup or the way of balancing the ensemble feels a lot to me like some of the Star Trek series, like Enterprise in particular, right? So Enterprise had you no know, crew of seven, but there were three main characters and then four supporting. And so, you know, if you look through like any 22 episode series of Enterprise, you know, the three main characters are like the leads in like some kind Kind of combo of like one of them is the center or two or all three of them on like you know 15 out of the 22 episodes and then the other ones get like one or two spotlight a season and this has definitely felt more like that like we have had storm spotlight issues we have had a bishop like in only 24 issues we have had bishop spotlighted we had a a pyro spotlight one remember where um the the dream sequence thing and he was going away like and he was with gene and like all of the stuff in the head like we we had had an Iceman one after Kate's death where where Iceman went and we found out that Iceman can kill some fucking people like he can kill a lot of people real quick if he wants to like, or just rip their limbs off but the majority of the issues definitely float around our our Hellfire the Hellfire trading company and our, and our, our Shaw Emma and Shaw has had multiple issues focused on him Kate and Emma, like, Kate was the protagonist through the first couple, like, Emma has had, like, this is the Hellfire trading company, I think, first and foremost, with the other ones in support, and they, they've each gotten, you know, an issue, which, you know, over the course of 20 might work. Do we want more Pyro than that? Yes, but <laughs> I kind of see it that way. To me, like, I, I definitely see it in kind of managing the ensemble with, like, A and B tier characters that Right, but I would just say, like, in Star Trek, they use their B, their B characters more. They use them more that I would wish Marauders would have taken that from, like, the amount that the B, char the B characters are used. And I have to agree with Drew. Like, for when you said that, like, from the X titles, you would prefer more ensemble. Like, that's kind of what I expect from X-Men is more ensemble, where you have that cast where it's like, yeah, every issue, like, will focus on someone else. But a majority of those issues have been the same people versus just kind of taking turns. And from X-Men, like, that's kind of what you expect is you do expect, like, those main characters, but a little bit more from the side characters versus what we've been given. I mean, it's good food, but the food can add a little spice to it. 
Well, and it also, it also to me feels a little bit like a non sequitur because I mean, for me, okay, I know that this book was supposed to be about, you know, rescuing mutants from, from hostile countries. I feel like it's morphed a lot. I, you know, the pirates now to space pirates is, it feels like a vibe, but it should still center around hellfire trading. And for me, one of the biggest things out of the gala was Christian Frost getting, well, we thought he was killed. But apparently he was just like grievously injured and uh, and and abandoned in the ocean. But like, how about some follow up with that before we go jaunting off into space? Like this just felt like such a unexpected. Where the hell is tempo? We were just given like a little little catnip of tempo, I guess, last issue. Callisto. Like- yeah. Callisto was brought in on the team. I feel like this issue did a better job of balancing the A-Bs in terms of if this was an A-led story. But I think it's not enough because too many of our A-led stories have not had any of the B characters at all. Kind of running with that Star Trek comparison still, the reason why you feel like you see those characters every episode is because you have the obligatory bridge scenes or sets where like everyone is together and in there. And we have not had that. We've had a lot of Kate and Emma-centric issues that we haven't seen Iceman man and pyro and callisto or or at all and so the fact that we got them in kind of like backstory moderation in this feels like not enough because we've been waiting for them if we'd been given them in backstory moderation like this all along every time that we had those i I think it would have held us over a little better so i will definitely yield the the other thing that i found a little off-putting about this like as long as we're being you know honest this little you know reveal that the marauder the shape-shifting telepathically powered boat that turns into a spaceship etc that emma won that in like a some kind of gambling game or is did i just like headcanon that like she got no. it from this guy She's emma what? stole it emma went out and contracted a space pirate to do some jobs for her and then she and part of their agreement was that she was going to wipe his memory and all would have been good but then at the end she liked his ship too much <laughs> so she stole it which okay took it. fine and but... that's why he's coming back looking for it now it's just it just seems a little messy to me because that had to have happened well before we established Araco and kind of like dipped our toes into space actually that happened before we even had the sword station so it's her like her father-in-law is the second sexiest space pirate in the galaxy granted yes and we have portals that get us to Shi'ar space or whatever I'm just saying it seems a little messy it seems a little you know it's not it's not a very well crafted tail i think it's just something that you that can't think Dugan about it threw out much. there and yeah. we just got to roll with it like yeah because i don't even emma frost as being characterized as like a space character i don't know that i'm like really here for that like it just like doesn't when? like i don't really yeah and it's just like the vibes aren't right for me she is more of like an earth-centered character i think and it just like doesn't i don't know i don't i'm not really a fan of no and if we <laughs> and if we take her off into space for a little while i'm down but this kind of like retcon of oh yeah that time that she swindled a space pirate out of his spaceship is like what like we're it's talking like about solo. Like, it's like it's like solo it's very solo so it's very solo. solo but like solo's backstory made sense for that emma's doesn't so i think some of this is that dugan's getting near the end of his run right assuming again in in my mind he is passing pirate book off to someone else as he's leading the main x title in what we know is a big shuffle in january that's not confirmed but this definitely feels like table setting and one of the big things that he started at i had completely forgotten about so if he had never wrapped it up i kind of wouldn't have noticed was that they had this mysterious alien technology fucking ship 
that Emma had and was like, don't worry about how I got it at the beginning. And that was never revealed or gone into. Now, the way they tell this story, it fits a little more natural post planet size. Like if this was to happen post planet size, it would make a little more sense. Like, all right, like, you know what, like, we're doing all this stuff. Um, But also, I mean, look, she's been getting Shi'ar logic crystals and doing this other shit. Like, she's clearly been out there negotiating for, like, we kind of known that she's been involved in some stuff. Like, it just, yeah, like, if you had given us this story as, like, Marauder Zero around Hoxpox time, it would have made no fucking sense. Right. But, I mean, that's partly, to me, what feels almost messy about it is just the fact that Emma would steal the ship and just take the ship. To me, like, she's such a wheeler and dealer, like we've said, that she would have, like, made that as part of the agreement. She would have modified the agreement in some way versus just taking it. That doesn't yeah. feel like Emma to me. and Because it's very, very much like, um, and so let's talk about one of the characters I really wanted to talk about in this, because we've talked about two of our three main A characters in this book so far, and Kate and Emma. Let's use this as an opportunity to talk about Sebastian Shaw as well, and how this might be, like, I really love what Duggan's done with Sebastian Shaw over this. The place Sebastian Shaw is at now, the journey he's gone through from fuck these bitches to, you know, making his power, making power plays and having them fail to making power plays and being successful to the girls getting their vengeance on him to him being stuck in that rickety jankety ass fucking wheelchair and neutered and humiliated to him finally getting his powers back to him having to accept that like the truth about Lourdes like he is humbled in a way that makes him a more useful member of Hellfire trading now I think Mm -hmm. and his interactions of like him hiding out on the Red Lagoon because you know what like I just want to be alone and fucking drink but like I'm not going to the Green Lagoon because I hate all those fucking people yeah (laughs) so he's in the the Red Lagoon and then of course Emma comes in and then like him stepping in and like you know saving like grabbing the explosive and and fucking power playing and showing that he's still a powerful mutant like we can't have our entire fucking quarter of the Quiet Council and Resurrection Protocols at once. Like, How for fuck's sake. <laughs> How embarrassing. And then he just takes the guy and is like, look, we're civilized people here. Like, we have lots of fucking money. There is no problem we can't solve. Like, yeah. like, like, we're just going to give you lots of fucking money and make this better. Like, and that kind of points out to the whole, like, Emma should have just given him lots of fucking money she, to start she with. She would have. In my mind, Emma Frost, as we know her, just would have. She's like, oh, I want this. I have money. Here you go. Mine now. Would she have, like, short, like, shorted him? Like, like, given him a, like, a bad end of the deal? Being like, I'm just gonna give you half of what it's worth? Absolutely she would do that. But just stealing it, it just, it doesn't seem like her. Can we talk about the adorable moment with Emma and Peepers? Because I love, I love when people see Peepers and they get excited. Like, this was right up there with Magneto seeing Peepers and being delighted Uh, like i just i love it i love that he's respected i love that this added to that because there was a lot of ambiguity about that scene like was magnetos genuinely happy to see peepers or was he just being overly effusive just to stick it in fabian cortez just to just to like fucking stick it to him And so the fact that Emma is also like, oh, peepers, come here, sweetie. Like, yes, was was fantastic. I love that. I love that. I think everyone just genuinely loves him. But yeah, that ending. Now, which ending are we talking about? 
talking about? Are we talking about ending A? Yeah, there's two endings. Okay, yeah. Or ending B, the return of Lord Chantel. The whole, like, throwing them into space. Like, the airlock. The airlock. Like, the airlock the, trope. The fact that they would have dinner in an airlock. Yeah, literally. Like, like, okay. Even Cyclops isn't that stupid, okay? Like, what the actual fuck was that? That they were in the airlock? Like, the only thing I can think of is that with the guy that I can't remember his name now because I just don't care, like, is back on his ship, so he's able to mind control it. Eden Rickslow. That's the only thing I can possibly think is... What no, my my read was that that wasn't an airlock that they they it was it, telepathically controlled. That's okay. That yeah. He telepathically opened up a fucking hole in the ship. And okay, cool. Well, yeah, basically he, they, he just hoping. like rolled down the window because like it wasn't like the airlock open. It's like the window was there and then the window was gone and everybody was blown out. And while we're talking about that, it, it looks like Emma might have a good chance to survive in her diamond form. But can we talk about Phil Noto's diamond form? Because wow, she looked like prism a blocky chunk of quartz not not really a beautiful diamond i don't know it was just a little off-putting emma's diamond form in this just took me out of it for a minute somebody on twitter and i can't remember who god help me uh but somebody tweeted a spoiler that garrock was in this issue and they posted a photo of, of her and i for a minute i was like oh my god garrock for real i can't believe somebody would spoil that and then when i read the issue i'm like oh shit that was emma <laughs> If you go to the page very before that, right, and you can really see the strengths and weaknesses of Phil Noto's art here on display, right? So on the very page before, we have a bottom right panel of Emma Frost. Hmm, did I borrow that? But you did try to double cross me. And let's be honest, I only helped myself to what you had previously stolen. Isn't that right? And the look on her, like, you see all the strength in Phil Noto's softness. Yes. Like, he he gives depth in softness and soft eyes in a way that are fantastic and this was one of his strengths on his um black widow run as well was having this kind of high action and this this very non-verbal character uh like natasha romanov who would then you know on these close-ups you could get more told through soft eyes than you would through the words because he doesn't say a lot and then you turn the page and we have this very boxy hard diamond form that is clearly not playing to his skill set like he is stretching and trying his hardest but it just doesn't translate to his style I, I also think it's because his style is very like 2d and in order to to really get the effect of that diamond form you need like a 3d kind of vibe to it and so it kind of just looks like a you know, blocky and chunky yeah it's got a little bit of danger to it like it's kind of reminiscent of like a crystalline danger it's not it, it's it's not great like it's fine um, when he does it for Iceman. Iceman, you know, just you only see Iceman in a couple of panels in this issue. Part session. of that is that we don't really get any close-ups on Iceman. Like Iceman's just in his ice form at dinner for no yeah. fucking reason. Yeah, other just than chilling. That, like it makes him clearly differentiate. Like you can clearly tell, hey, that's Iceman in the panel because he's all iced up at the dinner table for no reason. Well, yeah, hasn't he been just sense. in ice form just in general for most of Hawksbox right now? Mm. Yeah, but he can change. I mean, that it, it is weird that he's in ice form at that point. It is. Wandering around in it's ice just, form everywhere they go. That's just something 
something that I've just noticed is he's just he just happens to be in ice form a lot where he doesn't need to be. And just a lot of comics, I think. My headcanon is that he's just wandering around in that little black like speedo of his and he doesn't want to put clothes on. So he ices up instead. But yeah, it is kind of weird. It's like he's clearly only drawn that way because you're not giving him any lines or anything to do. And so by putting him in ice form, you can clearly point out to people like, look, Iceman's here. So do you guys think that they all died? Because the Marauders began to die the moment their bodies were sucked into space. The freezing void would be no easy death. Or no, Emma Sebastian's, Diamond can survive. Uh, well, yeah, maybe Emma can survive. Maybe Iceman can survive in full ice form. But yeah, I think basically Sebastian's fears will be realized and they will all end mm-hmm. up in the resurrection protocols. Or actually, couldn't Kate survive? Phasing? Yeah, Kate's phased in space before, I think. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. My assumption, because like you said, this is a trope, is that they're going to be like teleported, rescued, like mm-hmm. right at the start of that issue because this has happened a million times yeah. but we're also in the Krakoan era where you can just be like fuck it they all died and like the next issue opens in the hatchery right yeah the problem with the hatchery that or a problem that could be presented in the comic that I would like to see is in the hatchery where they don't remember what's happened because it's been a minute since they did a cerebral uptake. So they're just like, what just happened? Where's our ship? Like, oh, we were, we went up into space and we lost contact with Cerebro. So that to me could be appealing. And there's only three Cerebros now, right? I think so. We're down to three because Magneto's is missing and one's a sword. So are we down to three? I don't know. I mean, we just saw Exodus wearing one. We saw Jean was wearing one. It would be. I, I feel like they've got a bunch. If they had been slow burning this out of like slowly knocking off the Cerebros from like five, four, three, two, and like maybe they're doing that into next year. Who knows? Because like we are one off the board, one MIA at the moment. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But that doesn't seem to be as big a plot point as it should be. Yeah. Yeah, I've stopped worrying about the Cerebro backups or whatever. I feel like like that was something that was established. And now we've kind of moved past it, and it's like, oh, look, everybody gets a cerebro. We it's have just a, established we have background magic, no matter what. Like, yeah, cerebro's got gotcha. you. We'll yeah. see. Next. I definitely feel like it's a slow burn, like you said. Like, like Hickman has a seven year plan. Like, he, he has a long term plan, and this does not feel like coincidence to me. No, no. And I, I also like, I mean, they threw something out there in, I want to say it's the last issue of Marauders, where Sebastian had the idea of, like, no, 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 easy peasy. Look, we can resurrect anyone we want, even if there's no cerebro cerebro backup like i'm gonna go over to ava bell and we're gonna travel through time real quick and then we're gonna take a cerebro backup we're just gonna go to like yes. we go anywhere in the fucking world while they're alive we're gonna take a cerebro backup come back and then resurrect them like so we can resurrect people from any point in time now just by bringing a cerebro helmet to any point in time taking a backup and coming back which was kind of a big fucking deal like casual drop like sebastian had a big brain moment and then it didn't work because lordis isn't dead but you know they also threw that out there in terms of like you know like yeah don't worry or ask any questions about why we're resurrecting anyone and then in the final real conclusion of the of the book with a the big purple loud queen pop we hear and in appears Lordis Chantel. I thought that was so exciting. I kind of feel bad that Phil Noto was the first artist, I think, since Pepe to tackle the treehouse. Because the treehouse, every single drawing from Pepe about the treehouse has been so beautiful that, you know, in comparison, this was just kind of... Eh, it certainly looks very didn't. small here. It looks very small. It, it, it lost its whole scale. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then... 
like I find it again, like let's see where this is going to lead, but I find it a little odd that Lord of Chantel has come up, Sebastian and Emma are talking about her, and there's this whole, you know, retcon reveal of how Emma helped her out. And then that's kind of left dangling, but now she's just showing up out of the blue at the X-Men's doorstep. It just, I don't know, seems a little weird. Seems a little sloppy. Let me be more clear. It's not that it's weird. It just seems like a bit of sloppy writing, like where they were teeing her up in a way that I thought Emma was going to go and find her and, you know, whatever. Now she just so happens to be showing up. So it's like, is it a big coincidence or is she responding to some telepathic summons from Emma or, you know, what? It's very much TV ending. It's very much, you know, like, again, if this was a 25 episode TV series and we're like in the final episode and then, you know, you have a little, you know, 30, 60 second kind of tag at the end with like character that we've been talking about up here. Like it's very much in that style. I like when we see them using particularly television kind of storytelling dynamics or pacing because I think season-long television is a very, very good model for telling serialized comic storytelling over multiple arcs. And and I think it's one that we're comfortable with. I like that. I was a little higher on the, like, perish the fucking thought. Like, I think I was actually higher on this book than the three of you were, which... Yeah. Which is um, shocking. Like, I, like, Marauders used to be, and, and I still enjoy it but marauders used to be my number one book you know by a country mile it's good i still enjoy it but it feels like dugan is a bit spread thin i love what's happening over in in the new x-men run you know change is coming fast for all of us and and books are ending and inferno is going to shake up the status quo again and you know who knows what's going to happen when they announced that hellions was coming to a close i was devastated now i'm getting to a point where i'm kind of like no we could wrap this one up and then and do a reboot like i still want this team but yeah we could we could take a fresh fresh set of eyes and fresh creative team on the marauders book why not let's shake it up and and they've said this as well that like this is not like the end of a series this is the end of a season Mm -hmm. and like next season might not have the same name or the same creative crew like i I am all for that i am all for you know even if even if you're going to keep all the same titles but zeb has a big job on spider-man now like but you know zeb is on marauders or like Mm -hmm. if if you were to shuffle some of these around like yeah you know and you relaunch at number one and they have slightly different directions or they have a new mission statement for it because it's a new season and you know post inferno the new complications or opportunities like yeah i'm i'm all for that marvel gets to sell some new number ones and get a little sales boost you know we have some you know easier to differentiate trade clearly defined kind of you know markers in terms of eras and periods on the title so final thoughts let's do a little positive exercise at the end one thing that you liked about marauders 24 marauders is still definitely one of my top titles like even with the criticism that I have for this title or this particular issue I still love it and honestly Kate pulling in Abed where she's just like okay we're doing Star Wars now cool and she just like takes a laser and she's a blaster and she's just like okay cool we're ready like just don't judge me don't judge me like everything about Kate was just absolutely perfect in this title and as much as we say like it's the Kate and Emma show and we want to see more as the Kate and Emma show it's fantastic yeah I, I totally agree with you. I, I would love to see more of, of the supporting cast. I'd like to see them doing a little more support and some focus on them. But if it's the Emma and Kate show, I'm still here and I'm, I'm still happy. 
Kate is the Red Queen of the Hellfire Club. Mm-hmm. Fact. Kate, Red Queen is more her code name now than Shadowcat. Nobody calls her Shadowcat. That's officially in the past. She is the Red Queen or Captain Kate. I liked the cover of Russell Dodderman. <laughs> the Matthew Wilson colors on that cover. Yes, like I'll that was that. a little, this is one of those. And I know like Marvel loves, okay, you know, sales are better. And, you know, if, if we take our really good artists and, you know, on a month when they're not doing anything, we have them do 20 fucking covers. And then we put our, not to call Phil Noto a lesser artist, but we put the rest of our artists on interiors. Like, you know, people judge books based on the cover. It is always a little disappointing when you're like, oh, look at that beautiful mm-hmm. Christian Ward cover. Or look at that beautiful Russell Dodderman cover. Or look at that beautiful Pepe Larraz cover. And then inside, it's something different. I got the Betsy Cola variant. I'll post a photo of it under the under the episode. I saw that. Betsy I Cola saw that sounds in the... like a fake name. I love it. And yeah, she's incredibly talented. It was listed on, on my LCS's new releases as Cola variant, which for someone who's also involved in politics, I'm like, wait, we're doing a cost of living adjustment? What is... <laughs> There's a there's a cola issue. What? Yeah, but gotta, no, beautiful. Always out. beautiful. The art is awesome. Yeah. Like, are we ever on here? Like these fucking ugly variants. When are they gonna stop? Like the the beautiful covers. I would have liked to have seen some more Matthew Wilson colors inside. And if this becomes a space pirate book in January, I hope we get that. Sure. Cool. All right. Back to you, Nico. Hey, everybody. So this next segment is me and my incredible, amazing husband, Kevo, who does all of our graphics for this show and a number of other shows. And we came together to talk about It's Jeff Infinity comic. Now, I know it's kind of hard to get Kevo to read like a Deadpool comic as much as I love Wade these days. And But this was like, this was kind of like close. And I knew that Jeff would be just the goodest boy and would make Kevo really connect with something sort of in a silly, magical meme way. And I think that's part of what the Jeff Infinity comics are meant to do. They're meant to be something that you can dial into pretty easily, kind of an accessible point into a fun silly little character. You don't really need to know X-Men or Marvel. It's just fucking cute, you know? And sometimes it's just good enough to be fucking cute. And we hope you guys enjoy this fucking cute segment. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O A-C-T-I-O-N. And that makes me Kevo, and you can find me at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And we are here today to talk about the goodest of boys. And that's, it's Jeff, the Infinity comic published over on Marvel Unlimited's amazing new update where they are serving up Infinity Comics. Now, I just want to remind everybody that this Infinity Comics initiative stretches all the fuck way back to the pages of AVX. And that's like for legit. AVX, Avengers vs. X-Men, kicked things off with a number zero, which was originally an Infinity comic. It was a really interesting thing that they reprinted in one of the editions of the AVX omnibus. And, you know, so Marvel's been trying this in Infinity comic thing for a while, but this is the first time that I truly believe they are throwing the full might of the Marvel brand behind the idea. Now, the It's Jeff Infinity comic is spectacular for a million reasons, but one of the most certain is Kelly Thompson, Jeff's creator, as well as Gurahiru, industry legend Gurahiru, working on this title. Kevo, this is one of the funnest, silliest, cutesiest 
these things that we could cover. How did you feel stepping into the world of Jeff the Land Shark? <laughs> I literally, the entire time I was reading all of these, could not stop laughing to myself. They are so cute, so sweet. This is like the perfect dose of goodness to inject into yourself if you are having a bad day. It is just delightful and fun and you just keep wanting to keep scrolling like they found the perfect concept and story to be doing something like this with for an infinity comic because you really do just want to keep going and going and you know it is so important that you say they found the right thing because i say that the brilliant kelly thompson is jeff the land shark's creator but i believe i'm doing her a disservice by not saying she's the only fucking writer to write jeff the land shark because jeff the land shark has only appeared in 10 issues it's not like there's a whole lot of people who are doing this marvel really tapped into an incredible energy there's something sort of my little pony brony samurai from hell about deadpool that sort of captures the imagination of young boys in a fun way that brings them to the character and i think you know and young women too because look at the success of gwenpool certainly look at the success of spider gwen or or, or gwen spider or or san francisco treat gwen i don't know her name anymore but i feel like marvel really found something very accessible here that sort of is accessible in the way that deadpool is but i feel this is on a much grander scale cavo i feel like across the four issues pool party where jeff attends well a pool party shark cycle where jeff gets put in the laundry oh i couldn't help myself sheep's clothing where jeff gets a jeff wetsuit i'm just I'm I'm melting into pieces. I it's a this. dolphin. Oh my god! It's just so good. I'm just so happy. And then Captain of Fun, where Jeff gets himself Captain America's shield because Jeff is the goodest of boys and could of course be Cap sidekick anytime. So he just wants to play. He just wants to play in the snow. That's all he wants to do. He's Jeff the Land Shark, and sometimes the land is covered in snow. And throughout the course of these four issues, did you feel you were at a disadvantage for not being current on any of these characters in the comics? Or did you feel Marvel did a pretty good job keeping this easily accessible while still servicing guys like me. I mean, Robbie Reyes was in the pool, so I was thrilled. Yeah, no, definitely the former. I recommended recently to a friend the adaptation She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, and she asked me, do I need to have watched the original cartoon? And I said, no, you really don't. There are things you would appreciate more if you understood the original cartoon better. They made it accessible in such a way that you don't need to have watched it. And they really did the same thing here as long as you understand just the basic idea of Jeff the Landshark and what he is. You can really scroll through this and if you're a marvel fan you'll catch characters that you see here and there but if you don't know who everyone is it doesn't really take you out of the experience in any way shape or form anyone who is even the most casual of marvel fans can go through this and enjoy it absolutely and you know i think part of that is the clever suspension of disbelief you know we get a really memorable scene of the avengers after 
a really major battle all skinny dipping in Jason Aaron's run. And it's really one of the most charming sequences I've ever read. And it's just all the dudes all letting it hang out. And some of the ladies too. And Carol's like, Robbie, you can't look. And just about covers his eyes. And like, it's a really cute scene. But it kind of is maybe a little bit more, not just adult, but it's also something where you really kind of need to be aware of who these characters are. Yes, the shield is near Steve. Yes, the hammer is near Thor. But really, it's about the characters in that book. Here, for no reason, everybody's bathing suit is basically their costume. Storm (laughs) is straight up in her headpiece. So is Jane. Jane just straight up in her headpiece. Doctor Strange is in the cloak in the water. Everybody still has their fire going in the water. There's something very silly, playful about the way it's all handled. That I mean, I've obviously I'm not picking on the realism of this comic. I'm I'm very encouraging of it. I think it's a really smart method of getting these ideas across. You know, and in a way, you can almost view it as though it's from the perspective of Jeff the Land Shark. Where, from his perspective, it's some sort of fun pool party where everyone is like this. And it's it's probably not. It's probably a serious meeting or something. But that's okay. It's Jeff, and he's just, he's just a happy boy. And he's just having fun with everyone. Well, and you know, I think one of the magical things about Jeff is exactly what you just said. He's just a happy boy. Which is why when he gets stuck in the washing machine in the pages of Shark Cycle, we're not, like, dreadfully worried. You know, number one, he has the world's most amazing superhero alongside him Kate Bishop who could not be cooler if she tried and Jeff is charming just being stuck in the washing machine his and I, face in that one panel where he realizes oh no and you know it's Gurahiru and their ability to create joy through line work that I think really charms me. And there's a really great sense of kind of functional motion through the use of the infinity comic method. The scrolling actually makes it feel like he's almost spinning. If you scroll, not exactly fast enough, but you can also see the panels sort of change shape. You see the water levels rise. There was deft care by both Guru Hero and of course, Kelly, putting in the work to construct a book that read well for the method as well for me. Now, I know, Kevo, not only are you someone who prefers the stories of comics to comics themselves, in part due to the laborious method of digestion. I mean, it's you, you sit there and you have to read and you have to give it all of your attention or you're going to miss something. I have this such transition... trouble sitting still. Oh, as your husband, I know it. For you, was this method of Infinity Comic enough to offset that, not just keeping it short, but the changes in format? Maybe. I could see that. I think the way it is so continuous from one thought and scene and page to the next probably does help keep you engaged. It's probably the length, though, more than anything else. I think they kept them short and sweet. I just wish there were more. I want, like, 20. I know that's asking a lot, but... Hey, these have only been coming out they're they're weekly so you know there's going to be more hopefully so far we're only four in i would say perhaps the one that i thought not the least of but i found the least magical was sheep's clothing now one of the things that i thought was defining of pool party was the excessive number of cameos in a positive way positive excess positive excess Mm. right I thought the elegant charm of keeping the second story down to just Jeff and a hyper 
recognizable character who's about to have a big time thanks to the upcoming Hawkeye series. Kate Bishop made the second one very smart. The fourth one, which we'll talk about in a moment, Captain of Fun, featured Captain America in a dynamic way as well as other important characters. This one, you know, they were just sort of randos. This could have been Beach City. And I do now see that that is a dolphin suit and I'm just automatically going, oh, but look, it's Jeff in a cutie Jeff costume. I yeah. just thought Jeff put on a chibi Jeff suit and I see now yes. it's a dolphin and how much more sense that makes and how At that's first, even what the, the person is looking. Yeah, that the person's not thinking, oh, it's a chibi Jeff. They're thinking it's a dolphin. Oh, shit. Okay. At first, I also thought it was a shark suit, and I just thought Jeff's thought was, I'm going to disguise myself, and people won't know that I'm a real shark. They'll think I'm a pretend shark or something. I don't know. But yeah, no, once I saw the dolphin, oh, look, that's a dolphin bubble. That was when I was like, oh, oh, you cute little boy. I I really I really do agree with you though the fact that there are no character cameos in this it's so separated from everything in the Marvel universe it could almost be any generic webcomic and that's exactly what I was about to say you know there's something almost generic webcomic about it that I think proves the validity of the project as well. You don't want it to just be, oh, look at the cute Jeff comic. You do want it to be, look at the clever use of media. You know, it it's still a story about a shark boy and you don't have too many adorable shark boys running around. So it still, it still serves its purpose as being a unique creature. But I do feel that it is perhaps the most generic in general. Uh-huh. The fourth story Story, Captain of Fun is particularly important in a lot of ways. While I appreciate the first story features so many incredible heroes from throughout the Marvel Universe, there's something about the fourth story's inclusion of almost exclusively young characters of diversity. We, of course, have everybody's favorite queer teens, Hulkling and Wiccan. We have Miles and Kamala, who are not just two of the greatest heroes in the Marvel Universe, but have become synonymous with a new age of Marvel fans, giving a voice to countless Muslim fans, and an incredible generation of very excited Black and Latino fans that champion Miles so hard, and of course, Squirrel Girl, because if you have taste, you love Squirrel Girl. And it's a particularly special group of characters, because it's making sure that not just young characters see Jeff, but they're proving the cross-viability of these characters with an idea created for Deadpool. Now, Kevy, I know you've read a bunch of Hulkling. I know you've read a bunch of Wiccan, but I imagine as much as you're familiar with Miles, Kamala, and Squirrel Girl, this was probably your first time reading them. Now, I know this wasn't exactly let's go with canon heavy, but how did you feel about seeing recognizable entities in this? I felt a lot better about it than the last one. I think it's more in line with the first two issues of this Jeff series where there's cameos from varied characters. You know, we got a nice cameo from Cap at the end, obviously, because it's his property that the story centers around. And the kids didn't steal too much focus from Jeff either. It is supposed to still be his series. But, you know, especially in something like this, it's really easy to put in cameos cameos from even the most minor of characters. And you know the the I love that point because the questionability 
of the canosity of this story is obviously significant. Like, there is no, oh, yeah, this definitely goes right after the Dark Phoenix saga. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't something where we're worried about how it fits in with a crossover. So who cares who appears? It doesn't matter that Jane was in her Thor garb in the pool. Who cares? There's a sort of fun levity to it that I think that at many times, not just Marvel in general, but specifically the X offices need. And while, you know, Deadpool is in many ways an X-Men character, I am really fascinated by the minimal number of X-Men characters that appeared throughout this story. Yeah, I didn't really think about that, but that's a really good point. I wonder if it is because he is so heavily tied to X-Men characters that this is to make him more widely known throughout the rest of the Marvel Universe. They've already got the X-Kids reading. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really great point. Okay, well, you know, altogether, I would say the four issues of Deadpool's buddy Jeff in Kelly Thompson and Guru Hiru's It's Jeff in Infinite comic. I feel like it takes about five minutes to read all of it. It would be a 32-page 499 one-shot, but instead they chose to make it a Marvel Digital exclusive. Whenever we do these, we ask ourselves, is it worth the purchase? And if it's a Marvel Digital exclusive, is it worth the read? I wouldn't just say this is worth the read. I would give this to Jeff's way up and mm. say this is worth the read, the recommendation, and I hope Marvel takes the initiative and keeps making these kevo how do you feel i think this is worth the read whether or not you're a marvel fan or not i think like i said even the most casual fans of marvel including film fans have a lot they can get out of reading something like this it's just a lot of cute fun and it just made me feel real happy reading it now if there was any one thing you could get out of the future issues what would you hope to see myself i would probably hope to continue to see a growing roster of characters appear i know he's my favorite but it wouldn't suck to see daredevil hang out with jeff the land shark for a hot minute kevin who would you want to see or what would you want to see appear in the pages of it's jeff oh shoot that's a great great question i guess first instinct answer is i want to see more obscure characters like i said especially with this being very loosely canon and it being non-speaking appearances you can have a lot of great cameos from really obscure characters in something like this and that will make fans curious about who those people are and perhaps draw attention to characters who it's hard to get notice this is a really good opportunity for something like that because i think this should be a hit i think this should be popular with everyone it's a really great piece i love this art style uh it's very reminiscent of lilo and stitch for me i get that i really feel that energy it's a really bubbly kind of magic and you know gorda hiru's work does stretch back that far so it's very funny pages yeah you know i really hope that marvel does keep making these and you know there were a few of those terrific inclusions like you suggested kevin like super obscure characters and pool party but as we mentioned the issues did go on to feature fewer and fewer characters so hopefully the title does pick up on a few more appearances in the near future yeah
Hey, everybody. So, okay, Trial of Magneto, crazy title, spins out of X-Factor. X-Factor, which was this show's everything for so long. And as incredible as that title was, it couldn't have contained the multitude of breathtaking ideas that this incredible new title is showing off on every page. And we hope you guys enjoy just as much as we enjoyed covering it. This, our first coverage of Trial of Magneto number two. And welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm your co-host, Arturo, and you can find me over at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And today I'm joined by my friend, Steve. Hi, I'm Steve. You can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And Jonah. And, and I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jersever3. That's at Yeri Devasai PHR. And today we're talking Trial of Magneto number two, written by Leah Williams, art by Lucas Wernick, color artist Edgar Delgado, and letterer VCs Clayton Cowles. Scarlet Witch is dead, or so it seems. The Avengers are coming to collect. Telepathic shenanigans are on the menu, and we are in the thick of Trial of Magneto number two. We're going to see a, a pretty big big shift in Magneto's characterization in this issue. We're going to see a big reveal at the end, but none of it begins without that glorious first page. Let's talk about the psychic therapy prison situation that Charles is keeping Magneto in. And let's talk about that very enjoyable view. He's, we, we open on Magneto in a, his like lush bedroom that is themed after his and his husband Charles's insignia. <laughs> Just resting, open shirt, reading a book with some delightful readers on and asking Charles if he's enjoying the view. Amazing. Yeah, I, I love this. Steve pointed out in the green room. I, I totally missed it. I thought it was just like an ornate window, you know, above his bed. But when you look at it, it kind of has an X, you know, built into it. And then when you look further, the arms of it or, or what have you are basically deconstructed Magneto helmets. And shout out to Lucas Wernick because that is such a cool touch. Yeah, really deeply romantic, intricate design. Graceful, beautiful, charming. And Magneto loves a soft, flowing white robe. We know that, you know, going back to <laughs> X-Men number one. number one. Who could forget? Not I. It's the titties that do it. From yeah, side, the titties sitting. Yes. Big, big meaty chest out. <laughs> I just, I love those readers. I'm obsessed with the readers. <laughs> Adorable. But yeah. I also love that dollhouse panel where Hope is looking through the window larger than life. And it's like her peering into his psyche. I thought that was great. Let's talk about Hope for a second because I live. Like this characterization of Hope is consistent with the Krakoan era Hope. And it's also putting the foot on the gas a little bit and she and the five are not having any of Charles and, and Eric's bullshit and and I love that I love that we're sh we're seeing her and by extension the five kind of coming into their own they're still serving a function and they still are you know tasked with a certain you know function on Krakoa but they are also kind of like their own little autonomous quiet council themselves and they're having decisions and they're they're the next generation of leadership yeah they're the next generation and we saw you know 
in the recent issue that they're pushing back about the clones. I love yeah. that. And and here again, we see Hope saying, no, 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 bullshit. Even like I expected them like when Pox Pox was first released, like that they would like, you know, kind of go along with what the council says. So like, you know, if the council says no precogs, no precog, no clones, no clones. But no, they have like their own Atani and they can do whatever they don't have Elizabeth Council if they don't want to. Yeah, it is nice to see that they have their own sort of authority on uh, these matters. And it's clear that that's a core part of Hope's beliefs about it. It's really interesting to me seeing Hope and later in this issue, Gene, recontextualizing psychic things that we've seen a million times that we take completely for granted as actually unethical. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, like, and here's the thing is like, I don't exactly agree with Hope. I don't think that this is torture per se, but I do agree that it's fucked up. Like it, this is one of those times where I think Charles is not in the right, but I get what he's doing. Like, I, and I love this like morally dubious gray area that, that Charles Xavier occupies. But more than that, I love that Hope is calling out bullshit on. Like, even if I don't think this is necessarily torture, I do appreciate that she's pushing back and taking matters into her own hands, like at the at the first chance she gets. I agree. I don't I don't think that this is necessarily like the definition. I don't know what the definition of torture is, but this doesn't seem painful at the very least. It is coercive. And so is all of what Charles does with telepathy. Like, it's really interesting because like he's always been doing this. Uh, not not to say that it makes it ethical. I've always thought of Charles Xavier as a deeply unethical man, a deeply amoral person in a lot of ways. Gene later in the issue also, you know, points out like when they're when they're like, why don't we just erase the Avengers memory of going through the hatchery? And it's like, that's a thing Charles did like a million times, especially back in the Silver Age, like when he would just erase the minds of people who noticed that they were mutants at, at, a, at a whim, you know, like it was no big deal. And back then, I think Gene, you know, usually pushed back a little bit or she has in recontextualizations of the Silver Age. But it's interesting that she's just like, I don't think I should do that. And Hope is also like, I don't think you should do this. And these are tactics that psychic members of the X-Men have done forever with very little pushback. And we're starting to see at least Hope as a, as a younger leader saying like, you know, I'm, not, I'm actually not cool with this. And I don't see why you would think I would be cool with this. Charles half asking, can you not tell the other five yeah. about Just this? And she's apology. like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, He's like, I'm sorry, but like, this is necessary and we're going to do it anyway. You know, yeah, like, she's like, well, it's not just between me and you like this is fucked like <laughs> but yeah going back to what we were talking about before i also like it's it's been said throughout the entire series that the five are like a family like a found family i doubt she would have even kept that secret from them yeah as long as there's an open seat on the quiet council for as long as it lasts because like i feel like the quiet council's days are, are numbered at this point but hope would be a really good contender to take gene's seat just throwing that out there i mean i think it's good that the council or, or that the five is a separate entity but i think there is some merit in considering hope for that season. yeah i think the council's gonna be uh changing pretty soon <laughs> we're gonna see inferno number one before we see trial of magneto number three. Oh, see i didn't even realize how this was well okay so then in trial of magneto number two we have the avengers show up in their little quinjet how cute we've got captain america wasp iron man and the vision what did you guys and can i just this? say i hated iron man in this issue i hated him throughout i'm not an iron man liker in general but man did he get on my fucking nerves in this issue <laughs> you know what I, you know what i realized in oh, this issue is that i officially read iron man as robert downey jr like i, I like yeah i mean for better or worse like the mcu iron man is now who i hear and kind of yeah you know perceive when i see iron man which i don't think is a bad thing necessarily i kind of see vision in this as paul bettany and i'm i don't really appreciate that like i 
Paul Bettany was great as Vision, but I don't like this design for Vision. I'm a fan of the classic Vision design, and I think that I think he looks like a different guy. Yeah, but like I kind of get both sides. Like I I see, I hear Rogue as like her from the end series, which is like yeah, same. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's great. yeah, it's it's just kind of how you how you. And here I was hoping that Marvel would forget that they talked about the timeline of the marriage between Emma Frost and Tony Stark, and we were so close. We were so close to just forgetting that happened. No, but I feel like this is Leah, like, putting her stake in the ground and being like, no, fuck that. Over my dead body. I'm going to canonically establish that they have zero chemistry, that Emma Frost can't barely stand his ass. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mean, she never could. I don't understand why anybody thought that was a good idea. Yeah. I and on, and honest, honestly, other than, like, the fact that they're both rich, like, I, it's just, like, they don't, what, like, it doesn't even work. Like, she, I don't even think she's the kind of guy that he, she would be attracted to. Like, like she, neither would, oh, yeah, no. No, she's just, into Steve. No. She wants to get some of that Captain America justice. Well, because look, because she likes more, like, leaders, right? Like, 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 Cyclops is, like, a leader. So, yeah, she would, like, like someone like Captain America or, yeah, like. Tony is, like, a dirt ball beneath her. Like, she's yeah. made sure in every appearance with him. Yeah. Like, I don't, what is wrong? No. Yeah, uh, I, I thought it was, you know, kind of interesting how they took the Avengers on this little tour and they kind of retraced the steps that we saw in House and Powers with the diplomat from Israel. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cool, seeing like Zorn floating in the Himalayas. I love that Lorna's, you know, gut reaction is like, well, I mean, it's a dirty business, but we're going to have to mind wipe them all, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I know we're like, why even, speaking why of didn't morally dubious telepathic activities, like Lorna, you know, Magneto daughter is like duh what else are we gonna do and why then, did they just not go to the hatchery i yeah, don't understand <laughs> like wasn't, it's not an option right what? yeah yeah like do, they, these guys don't have a map they don't know that they're taking they don't like, know anything the about this island tour. you're taking them on a tour yeah like we could have kept the tour literally just on krakoa we didn't have to go like and here are seven of our satellite bases you know and here is the hatchery yeah. that was a little weird it's a hatchery. oh and you're then, not supposed to see that oh and then the hatchery is currently occupied by about a hundred mutants like that was yeah, why are they also all people. there yeah. a lot of people hanging out in the hatchery just this one morning well probably they're all around celebrating that yeah. you weren't like all these people are here and you you weren't supposed to be here either so but i did <laughs> it's get just my like life with emma's uh poolside or beachside outfit that that bathing suit and the sheer topping like coverall like oh love her in the sunny with her sunnies with her sun- why are you gagging she bring it to you every ball she really do she really did. I think I think this early scene was uh, just kind of necessary setup, at least for a theory that I have about the end of this issue. So I guess we'll we'll get to that. One one thing that uh, that kind of trips me up when it comes to this this little telepathic subterfuge is like you got Tony Stark there, so I just assume his suit has some kind of anti telepathy video monitoring you know device or whatever, and you got Vision there, and you know I know Emma and the Cuckoos are super powerful, but he's not exactly your run of the mill mind, so you know like we 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 we're not gonna sit here and poke too many holes in it. It was a cool scene, but yeah, it, yeah, it. Uh, I, I, I think it's necessary foreshadowing that that is I think that is why it's there and it is also fun. 
Well, we also had this talked about in the Lauder Chantal issue of Marauders, where Emma is known for being able to make you see things that you potentially want to see or what she wants you to see. Yeah. And so this isn't new necessarily for her, but it does it does bring about a lot of intrigue as, oh, is this how Emma's going to be involved? Because there's a clearly there's a lot more going on than what we initially assume that there's just a dead body and a murder is afoot and we have to find out who done it but no that's not actually what's going on here and, and I, I am it was one of those things where when the trial of magneto's promo stuff was coming out and you see charles magneto and we it was a lot of emma as well I, I saw a lot of people questioning well what did emma do how is emma being dragged into this and i think emma is playing a role but yeah you know, remember <laughs> remember in the last issue when magneto finds out that they let like a bunch of x-men present at the autopsy including lorna dane his daughter who has the same powers as him and he's like are you kidding me they could have tampered with the evidence what are you thinking and it's like yeah i there's a lot there's a lot going on here that could be one way or the other because they have not conducted a tight investigation well and speaking of tampering with the evidence which before we go to that page i do just want to say i always love when emma uses her sex appeal as a weapon or a distraction like you know it's it's just very in character and this is this goes back to like that marauders issue where she you know basically flashed those guys with the guns and like it's just something she does and she's no less powerful or magnificent or whatever because of it like emma frost's sexuality is part of her arsenal and i love that it always reminds me of that anna senti classic issue yes where like exactly. she literally is talking about this exact thing back in her hellfire days emma frost and janet's friendship that oh, yes. i need to know more about do they get like tea together every now and then do they talk business do they talk fashion like probably fashion yeah what she says i most certainly do know wasp darling like oh i love emma so tampering with evidence, we go to the House of M, right, to Magneto Citadel, and we find that one of the Cerebro helmets is missing. It's not looking good for boy Magneto here. <laughs> it's not looking good. And then, so here, so I have a question about this. So at this point, Rachel does her chrono skimming, and she confirms that, yep, Magneto himself took the helmet. Now, how do we know how the chrono skimming works? Is that just basically what she can see? Or is it like a telepathic impression of Magneto? That is definitely Magneto. Because in yeah, my no, head, right away, I'm like, uh, is that Magneto or is that Mystique framing Magneto? Because Mystique could certainly shift into Magneto and, you know, leave. It seems to me like she only sees physical forms, but that's all we can see on the screen. So it's it's not a screen on the page. It's not exactly detailed how, how it works ever as far as i know and that makes this uh this makes this makes it extremely ambiguous if there's one thing that the series is great at it's keeping me guessing constantly i do love that leo like really you know because going back to x factor like leo really brought this whole chrono skimming thing back to the surface like that was part of rachel's power set it feels like a lot of people forgot about that for a very long Hell, time I forgot about it. yeah and she she was you know just a telepath telekinetic kind of you know brawler for a little while and i i just love that we're going back to that and it's just such a cool beat for this investigative team you know and leah's juggling a lot of plates here because she's giving us some of the new x-men team you know and and you see them walking around as a unit she's giving us classic you know x-factor investigations and in this issue she's giving us some some a 
Avengers shenanigans. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of missing or a lot of moving pieces. And I think she's doing a really good job of, of, of playing with it. And then our next page, we get to some magic mumbo jumbo from Scarlet Witch and a possibly helpful, maybe not super helpful white page diagram on which we see what looks like the tree of life or egrasel yeah. in the bottom mm -hmm. and bonsai tree. Do we know what that one is about? I don't because know. I was going to ask you, Steve, because the last time we talked about this, you had a lot of thoughts about these. these it's diagrams. the eight-point chaos power, and it is, in fact, Yggdrasil, but I don't know what the other, the bonsai tree is. Maybe it's just another tree of life. There's a number of them from cultures around the world. But if anybody knows, please hit us up on Twitter mm -hmm. about it. For In terms of symbolism, bonsais represent harmony, peace, in order to your thoughts, and balance. So there could be something there about that, you know, sure. I think. Magic I, I is something that has to be balanced, and there's a price to pay for what you do with your magic i like that uh, scarlet witch is writing free verse about magic while she's dead or maybe it's just her old diaries i don't know it's very difficult for me with these data pages that and i count this as a data page that have been happening lately because like the chronicler for example i have i just often have no idea what's going on there see i take who, the, i take who is author is a, is always a troublesome problem with these yeah i take these white pages as kind of her internal monologue during after her death as she's yeah, in, like this, in the white hot room in the white hot room exactly like these are these data pages are straight from the white hot room is is the way i do i do feel like that's the case yeah it. yeah meditations on afterlife and what what you experience while you're living this this magic free verse again coming up yeah, th this was this was kind of like some trippy, you know, poetic stuff. And Lucas Wernick does a really good job of illustrating this, her coming into being in kind of an abstract way. Just like we saw in Sword when they first went and got the Mysterium from the heart of an Ophanim. It's just like, man, what is going on in this? Um, in my opinion, the White Hot Room is, in fact, an, an upper afterlife, like for sure. I've seen a lot of people talk about the idea that the White Hot Room is some kind of dimension where the phoenix hangs out. I believe it is literally heaven. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Or, or like, you know, uh, not, uh, not necessarily a, like a heaven adjacent, heaven. like like how limbo yeah, is hell, dimension. but limbo is a little bit different than hell. That's how I see the White yeah. Hot Room. Yeah, so we see this, you know, weird resurrection, you know, happening. It seems like Wanda is doing it of her own belief. It seems like she's in control. Certainly doesn't look like she's cracking out of an egg. It feels like she's going through cyclical rebirths, or at least ex experiencing one death and rebirth multiple times. At, at least the writing leads me to believe that she feels like she's groundhog daying it oh, in some way. Yeah, and even this little so on this page, there's these like three, you know, bubbles basically, and if you follow them, it's basically like a little stalk. flower growing, like a little stalk, and then a bud, and then a full rose, and then before you turn the page, you see like rose petals falling so again a callback and to there's that. some like yeah yeah so i'm not really sure what's going on but yeah i think death and rebirth and maybe in a cyclical nature that's kind of what's going on and in that yeah that's what i was thinking too it was like very phoenix -y. yeah it is phoenixy but we've already got echo and i don't i don't want it i don't want it <laughs> Yeah, but I'm okay with us kind of like, room, I, so you know, I'm okay with tying the Scarlet Witch to the White Hot Room and making it separate yeah. from the Phoenix thing. And like, you know, Why not? I, I'm not a big fan of AVX, but like back then, like there definitely was a little 
bit of a counterbalance presented between those two forces. Like, I, I don't think it's it's a place for all Omega Mutants to go, but I think for Scarlet Witch to be able to ascend to the White Hot Room or whatever, it's, it's kind of cool. And it's a way of, you know, hopefully reclaiming Scarlet Witch as a mutant and and reclaiming some part of that sure without is, seems like. dealing yeah. with the Phoenix. Especially, like, so I see the White Hot Room as more of, like, a purgatory than a heaven, kind of like an in-between of both. Cool. Like, it is literally just, like, a, a nothingness. Like, I think it would be fine for her to go to the White Hot Room. Don't you guys think it would be kind of convoluted? Like, I agree, I also want her to be a mutant, but it's, again, we're, like, we're going back and forth and back and forth again on whether she is or not. And this can be the last time. <laughs> yes, but I feel like we've said that, we've said that like, every time, though. Yeah, but... No more, no more. <laughs> Marvel, honestly. Speaking of her and her, you know, relationship with mutant kind, the High Evolutionary is coming back, and he's bringing with him Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver's sister from that retcon where they were be- where they became non-mutants and I'm blanking on her name but um definitely a solicit although we've seen him in the pages of X-Men hanging out with Cordyceps Jones true very true mm-hmm. that's very true yeah yeah so you know who knows exciting things are on the on the horizon I'm excited to see what happens with Wanda I love this little exchange with Hope I, I'm not sure where the hell Charles left to that he left Hope and, and uh, Eric unattended but I love that she woke him up and she was just so direct with him she, it looked like, almost like she gave him a little psychic you know whammy like yeah she grabbed his chin yeah 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 yeah. like the uh the alleged sister is luminous luminous yes yes which i would have been fine with forgetting she existed and never seeing her on the page again but you know as with so many things in krakoa like i see these characters that i've written off and i'm like what we're bringing back onslaught we're bringing back emplate we're you know all these people and they do something kind of cool with it so i'm excited to see what happens with high evolutionary and luminous and i want to see luminous cross paths with quicksilver and, and scarlet witch hopefully with hope waking up magneto i know people have been kind of content about this and do we think that hope is implicit in the killing of wanda do you think we she has something else going on or like me do we think that she just has the best interests of krakoa in mind it doesn't want the avengers to notice the body that is now missing and see, learn about resurrection and know that the x-men don't know where wanda is no, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a mix yeah. of a couple of things. I think Hope is someone who genuinely does have what is best for Krakoa at heart. And I think that I think that's everyone in the five because they know how yeah. not only important their role is, but important they are to the success of mutant kind if, if they're going to survive in this world. Those five are but I, it, the language that and the way that she's drawn, Hope is involved more than I think we initially knew about. And I think there is, again, a lot more going on. Steve, you talked about about Emma's, you know, illusion creating being a smoking gun. I, I can't help but notice that it feels like Hope knows more than she's le- uh, leading on. It does seem like that, although, you know, all I have to go on is body language and mood, but it that is what is communicated, at least to me. I really enjoyed when Northstar went to comfort Quicksilver and he said, hugs can be productive, I hear. Sometimes people need hugs. And Quicksilver said, fuck you, not that. And then he gets cut off with an attack from Magneto. I, I think that Quicksilver is be- <laughs> one of the breakout stars of this series for me. I'm a big Quicksilver guy, and I have come to love Northstar. Watching them two interact is so precious to me, especially since they're like weird 
long lost brothers in a way, just because they I guess really because are. their powers are so similar, you know. But well, not they, just their powers, friends. but their whole like characterization. Like, yeah, the Norse that we see nowadays is very similar to you know Peter David's Quicksilver, and I I would say Peter David is the one who like kind of elevated Quicksilver uh, back during his his X Factor run and kind of seemingly by accident. Yeah, well. <laughs> you know uh and, and but like that's certainly like when and where i kind of made my impression on quicksilver and then it became kind of like no he's not a mutant anymore he's not around so we have this other bitchy speedster that we can kind of you know make care so seeing them together was great it's almost like seeing boom boom and jubilee interact it's like two characters that are separate characters but they are so similar yes. that it's, it's very it's much like that. funny to see them bounce off each other uh then immediately traumatic to see magneto wrap him up in barbed wire like he's he's in so much pain you fuck it's really interesting that you talk about comparisons to north star and quicksilver because they're both twins with super speed powers where their sisters have had mental illness used as character vehicles for their stories as well as plot devices and you're like they're both like contentious assholes you're like huh maybe i would be too if my sister was used in this way yeah but north star can fly so he can fly yeah north star can do a lot more than quicksilver Quicksilver, you know, was a drug dealer for a while, giving people mutant crystals I before they exploded. I don't, I don't acknowledge it. <laughs> we don't acknowledge that. Part I of his don't life. acknowledge that Quicksilver. It was Quicksilver in uh, Avengers Volume Three, and then uh, Avengers No Surrender. He he disappeared. He was with Crystal for a while. Um, she cheated on him. Didn't have any regrets about that. They talked about it. <laughs> crystal is crystal is something i like crystal but that's like that's her whole deal yeah and then you know this this was kind of cool i i love this battle like magneto obviously making the biggest diversion he can like all out assault on the avengers basically here's where you know and i'll be i'll be just you know honest and uh no hard feelings or whatever but here's where lucas's art kind of loses it a little bit for me because it was it felt very unclear right like you're inside the boneyard but then all of a sudden pietro's being wrapped up by these barbed wires and then magnetos outside and then you know like it just it seemed a little sloppy who where they were where the battle was taking place yeah the spatial dimensions were a little a little confusing although we get repeated shots of magneto attacking the boneyard so we know it's like around there but i mean definitely there's like a lot of skipped action which is yeah lorna comes out magneto kind of like gives her shit for like really you made a whole you know metallic structure like you know what an indulgent design how dare he how dare he call anybody indulgent the man has like he had like this cthulhu island in the middle of the ocean he built himself a gigantic freaking satellite named after himself twice or three times like this dude invented the savage land mutates indulgent my ass (laughs) what a piece of shit You know, Lorna coming back with, well, since you mentioned it, I designed a sentient defensive structure for my doctoral thesis. Welcome. Like, yes. (laughs) You got an air, right? Yes. Her throwing that in his face and like confirming that she got a doctorate. Like, I love that. No, no A, but she got it. And C's and B's get degrees. You don't need an A. Yeah, she got a PhD. So that's, that's what's fine. I love, I love that line. It's fantastic. Welcome to Mm -hmm. Dr. Lorna Dane. Do we think Alex didn't get his degree? Because I think Alex Alex did not. I can assure you. 
Alex, Alex did not. No shame to people who didn't get their degree. That's also me. Exactly. But Alex, man. That's also valid. I don't think Bobby finished his degree either. My only qualm with it was when she specifies that it's a, a sentient defensive structure. Like, I think the art could have done something to actually show it being defensive. That did not seem to be it the case. It didn't come yeah. across at all. It looked like... I need to pull it like a banana. still has a big hole in it. So that, you know, that was like another one of my little, like, if we're going to nitpick, just something that I think would have been cool. Iron Man's like, I'm going to give you 10 minutes to just... I hate him. I know. And then literally like the next panel basically he's like i said 10 minutes but never mind i'm so <laughs> I like waiting yeah like what why did you even say that bad why did you even say that cyclops is like yeah whatever <laughs> i don't care i'm gonna handle this stay the fuck out of it I feel like a lot of big fights, they end before 10 minutes anyway. Yeah. Like, there, there's no, like, extended fights. It's usually someone goes down either pretty fast or, like, it takes a bit, but not 10 minutes. I want to point out something that happens in this in this fight that I have not seen anybody talk about yet, and I want to get you guys' opinions on this. Kyle shows up, which leads to probably my favorite scene in the issue with North Star, you know, being like, I will kill every fucking one of you to save my husband. I can't even, do you want to see me do it? I'll do it successfully. Something that kind of gets lost in that is that we saw Kyle last issue and Kyle got enveloped by vines near Scarlet Witch's disappearing body. Tommy says, hey Kyle. And then they talk a little bit about not leaving Wanda's body alone and the reason why, as Kyle sees when he gasps, is that she's covered in vines and then the vines wrap them all up in like this horror scene right here. And Kyle walks out of a cocoon gate wearing a different shirt in the second issue with no mention of whatever is happening there. So this leads to my other theory, which is when another unexpected person shows up, Wanda herself, to deny Magneto's involvement in her death. I think I think Emma Frost is just creating a crazy illusion about this whole thing. I don't know why I believe it, but it's like we were seeing her doing that earlier in this very issue. And suddenly Kyle walks out when he shouldn't be here. Wanda shows up and kisses the vision who she's been divorced from for like 20 years now. She murdered that man. I'm sorry. Okay, okay but there's well, also... we got to talk about. But there's also the, the panel where Mystique shows up yes. and she's like, well, then this should be interesting. And I don't know if she's saying this should be interesting because of what's leading up to like Inferno and like, oh, this could like this is going to make Inferno interesting. Or if it's because she did it and like this, she's interested in the result of what's I, happening. I think that's I mean. to show us. I think that's to show us that or it's both. not Mystique being Wanda. Although like, so I still I still think that course. Mystique may have stolen the Cerebro helmet. I, I, I like, and she has motive for that too. Not just to frame Magneto, but if she's looking to resurrect Destiny, you know, whether or not she has to coerce the five, she is going to need a Cerebro helmet. So you make a super good point. I bet that Magneto was Mystique. I, I do think Mystique only shows up here to be like, hey, reader, that is not Mystique as Wanda. But you are totally right that she could have taken that Cerebro helmet to resurrect Destiny. What would Magneto be doing with it? Like, it just doesn't you know well maybe resurrecting wanda since she does show up here but as i as i believe that this is like an emma frost illusion for some reason although i could be wrong this could be just wanda back you know i don't know what's going on in the series well, to be honest but here's the <laughs> thing is like which wanda is it back because although yeah the the quiet council had a very neat and tidy vote in the first issue and said we're not resurrecting the scarlet witch even if we have of old backup of her mind is that what has happened here like that that's definitely one of the you know one of the theories is that the wanda that we see here who inexplicably flies up to vision and kisses him might be a resurrected wanda backup you know which the which was posited in the first issue as something within you know the realm of possibility like something that the the five could do so 
we might end up with two Wandas. Like, what if this is the old, the old and now newly resurrected Wanda, and then we're also going to get the Wanda who's doing, you know, beat poetry uh, in in the white pages. The yeah, but Wanda. there's also like there are other ways. Like for me, even if like the five don't want to resurrect her, there are other like there are other ways that she could get resurrected. Like, yeah, there's like Layla, a there's like Layla Miller, Layla Miller, Sinister. Uh, you know, there's just like that's yeah. that's kind of how I think they how things might happen. It's so it's so weird because I want to believe that this is actually Wanda having shown up through the power of her own magic, but I feel like the Emma Frost thing earlier in this issue just has me stuck on the idea that that was a smoking gun, you know, just or a Chekhov's gun, I should say. Whatever. I don't know about literary theory. <laughs> I don't know terms. I don't know terms. I just know that this is intriguing. I I think there's a lot going on here and for a bigger ploy for something, whether that's Mystique to get Destiny back, whether that's Emma Frost trying to make a power move to usurp both Charles and Eric from their quiet council role, which I don't really think she needs to do or would do, but there there's there's definitely a lot more mystery afoot. And the, it actually is a very interesting point that you bring up that if this is an old Wana, because that's something that I, I noticed is that the costume looked like an older rendition and the first thing she does is go to kiss the vision so is this that she doesn't have all the memories but then she wants to explain everything so does she or it's it's an older costume but unfortunately it's also the one she died in so Mm, yeah enough which i don't know why she was wearing in the first place because it's not what she's been wearing for years but i it's a nice costume maybe she thought that that was appropriate for the hellfire gala i mean another thing too is look at what her like what magneto's wearing is his old yeah his mutant clothes but like his evil mutant clothes where he's like a bad guy right anti-capitalist mutant clothes but sure yeah (laughs) the lettering page 22 for when magneto is screaming is like gorgeous yeah yeah absolutely is like shout out to the letter and like just seeing him so angry and so clearly playing the part of i am going to number one distract these these avengers i'm gonna i'm gonna take a hostage that i have no intention of of hurting but you know like i'm gonna do like they will always see me as a villain so i'm gonna go full villain right now and give them exactly what they're expecting to see out of me anyways i'm gonna confess to the murder of scarlet witch and just like you know he he it's a little heavy-handed like he's he's overplaying his part but to the point that like Captain America is even looking at him like, mm, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Captain America mostly, th- I mean, honestly, Captain America mostly thinks of this as Magneto. Like, we've seen that in the original Avengers versus X-Men and then in the series that happened. Like, I, I think this is what Cap thinks Magneto is always like because he's never seen another side of him. I do want to say seeing Mystique hiding in the shadows again, like, sometimes there's panels that feel like they're a meme, you know, and, and this was definitely <laughs> that. Yeah. This was like giving me Kim Kardashian in the in the trees or 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 homer backing up into the bush you know like it's just i i love that i love those you know that might even be like a subconscious kind of reference but like i saw it so yeah i can't wait to see you know what happens with mystique and who knows which scarlet witch we've got here making out with vision i yeah i don't know and what's going on with kyle i'm sorry i keep coming back to it but it's driving me nuts because this issue it's like that didn't happen in the last issue and that definitely happened Going way back to page 14, and how do you know my husband? Mm-hmm. It looks like Gene is hugging Speed mm. in his costume, oh. which is weird. So that would mean that both Speed and Kyle and maybe Wanda have been replaced. Odd <laughs> uh, people, I'm telling you. 
is this is this a uh, are we go is are we going back to Empire? Are we going all the lines and like stuff? speed? That doesn't look like Quicksilver, does it? No, because it's it's a greenish costume. The hair is a little different, but like the hair is different. Yeah, and Quicksilver is standing behind them all anyway, or in front of them, I guess. But yeah, I think that is speed. What the hell is going so, on? So, what are Speed and Kyle doing out of the the vines of the corpse? What are Speed, Kyle, and Wanda all doing outside of some weird vines that have enwrapped them all somewhere where Hope is trying to keep the Avengers away from? Why does Hope want to keep the Avengers away? I don't know. This mystery gets tighter and tighter. I don't. I don't know why, but nobody is talking about this Kyle thing that I've seen. I, I you bring up I, a really good point. <laughs> I see it as like maybe I, I'm like maybe it's a mistake. I, I don't guess. think so. So no, come on. Like an edit and an editorial mistake. I mean, I'm willing to accept editorial mistakes as very often. Well, but I, I don't think Williams and Wernick would do it. We'll see. I loved seeing one one little thing. I loved seeing Gene and Rachel working together. Shields up, bomb. That was a cute little. That was super nice. Cute little moment. That was something that I really. Did enjoy and that i wish they do continue to do they don't they don't really talk to hope hope is kind of like <laughs> yeah the off daughter which is weird well, hope's but, uh, right so it's a little different <laughs> i do like when gene and scott or any like parent inter- interact with their kids i think it's really funny so like that's kind of why like i miss kid cable a little bit it's kind of like mom and she's like no guns after dinner set the table first and you can play with guns i wish rachel would do more of an anti-rachel thing to hope but i don't know if hope would be into that i mean and here's the thing about like we're going era is like you're juggling such a huge massive cast of characters specifically for this this event that maybe the last thing we need is more people but it feels like this is a case for lucas bishop like bishop would be great at helping to solve this like that's that's his whole shtick so i kind of i kind of wish bishop was here and doing something rather than acting as filler backup character over in marauders he is not just philip backup character he is philip hot backup muscle character super hot super hot but there's more he, to him. he plays a very important role he is the titty man meat of marauders yeah i mean i think bishop fans have been starving for a long time and you know looking at the solicits it looks like something good is coming for for bishop so i'm, I'm super pumped i hope that. so like it's long overdue you know ever since yeah. uh his character assassination back when he was chasing <laughs> baby hope and cable through the timeline like you know, things have been looking up for him. He certainly got a hell of a, a makeover as the Red Bishop. Yep. Like, love that for him. But I, I need, like, some good Bishop stories because he's... I want just, him to be more than a prop. Yeah, he's he's just... He's been so underserved. Yeah, so a lot of questions here. You know, which Kyle is this? Where Where's Speed at? Magneto magnetically controlling the shield and using it to, to pummel uh, Iron Man. Love that. That to, me, <laughs> that to me was, like, such a classic, like... He asked like, for it, too. Back to like acts of vengeance or whatever that crossover from like the late 80s early 90s where like different villains were fighting each other's you know enemies and magneto you found magneto fighting with uh with, with iron man it kind of reminded me of that i love that iron man came prepared he came with a non-magnetic suit you thought so yeah <laughs> Everybody, Iron Man is so fucking arrogant. Sorry, I keep swearing about Iron Man, but he's so damn arrogant. He came to the island. He was like, so my suit's not magnetized. Like the last time when he was like, my suit's wooden. It's like, he's going to set you on fire. He's going to throw something else metal against you. Like there's metal all around you, buddy. Yeah. Uh, I love I love Janet getting a hit in on Magneto. Throwback to when Janet and Magneto were a power couple for three minutes. Yeah, and then it was just Janet using him, and Magneto was like, "Wait, what?" But but I loved you, and she was like, "No, I didn't love you." 
we made out once. God, when was that? Was that like Secret Wars? It was the first Secret Wars. Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Wild times. And that that's was, where we almost got um, Thor and Enchantress as a couple. Which actually I ship. Yeah, that's a good couple. Bring that back. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about mutants. Mutants and Wanda. So we are not even at the halfway point. That's very Wild what you're saying that Inferno is going to start coming out before the trial is done. That makes zero sense to me. It felt like... It's in a couple weeks. <laughs> it feels like trial should be, you know, wrapped up before we get into Inferno, but that's, I agree. that's very interesting. Like, and I, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Like, if that's going to be time shifted or if the trial is still going to be active in the pages of Inferno, like if that's being accounted for, who knows? Who knows? So much change is coming. So many things are being wrapped up. So many things are being teed up for, you know, the next season of, of Krakoa. And um, yeah, it's a little bit of an emotional roller coaster as a reader. You know, we you lose faves, you see books getting canceled, but it feels like the line overall is in a healthy place and, and going forward pretty strongly. But yeah, we'll see. It, it looks like 2022 is going to bring a whole lot of changes to the island. Yeah, looking forward to it. Also, I just want to one more time thank Lu- Lucas Wernick, your stuff is always horny yes. i love it keep up the good work he draws really pretty faces yes he does uh the, the one that everybody pointed out where polaris looks like Lindsay lohan as is, is oh, yes. <laughs> gene also looks really good in this issue i just, yeah it's it's funny uh, just uh, occasionally a face gets the good treatment for everyone that hates on gene's green dress i gotta say when she takes off her mask just the green it's better dress the terrible looks mask. pretty dope i think the mask is really what throws the, that outfit but the, the that, mask is bad the, the dress is kind of hot the dress it, it works here it, it works it, though maybe maybe a different color glove only because it looks like she's about to wash some dishes yeah it's the dexter's lap mom yeah no i'm just i'm always <laughs> grateful for when we see her actually not washing dishes because we've seen that happen twice and both times it just kills me uh, but i digress i digress yeah, everybody looks real good. Yeah, yeah. Lorna, Lorna, and Jean running around in their little mini dresses. I kind of live. Oh, I, I, you see, I forgot my biggest thing about this issue. Lorna doesn't have a cup of coffee. Mm, she must be cranky. Lucas, if you're listening, please make a note of that. <laughs> make a note to give her some coffee. Yeah, got my girl, got my girl. It was like seven p.m. when they were doing this. <laughs> that doesn't matter. That does not stop Polaris. <laughs> she was a college student. Okay, but she has to go to bed soon. Yeah, she does. She strikes me as the type who stays up way past her bedtime. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh two until like two o'clock, three o'clock. Yeah, yeah. not working anything, just surfing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is this is like I think one of the more exciting titles happening right now. It's a really interesting uh, crossover event, and it feels like there's big stakes, and it feels like it's we're going to end in a place that's different from where we began. And I love that. I love these are the kind of crossover events that I love when it ha- there's stakes to it, and it's not just fighting some intergalactic threat that's going to end life as we know it, and then we win, and everything stays the same hurrah like no this is this is this is definitely changing the the foundation of Krakoa it actually has consequences and it's not I don't want to say changing this the status quo but Ellen love that all right that's it for us back to you Nico Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, Jane Foster and the whole Thor universe and mythos has been really important to this show the last few months, and it was just so fitting that we talk about this last issue with as many people as covered the series as we could. It's been such an important thing for us as a team growing, the Mighty Valkyries, along with things like Strange Academy and Runaways, were really pivotal turning points for us as a team of readers and discussers looking at books that we cared about, and it was so thrilling 
to get to go on this ride with Jason Aaron for 19 incredible issues. And Jane Foster just means the absolute world to me. And I can't wait to see what he has in store for us next. And as always, guys, until next time, we hope you guys enjoy this last segment. We love making this show for you every week, at least twice a week. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels, and help ferry them to the other side. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Normally I kind of go like, snicked when it's a Wolverine book, but I kind of don't know what noise a Valkyrie makes, so like... That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, they're just going to know their sound. <laughs> I'm, I'm Kyle. Uh, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S 82. And uh, I don't make noise. <laughs> I'll help. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's Nathan. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. And he's got it. He's got it. He knows the sound. I guess that makes me Jane your Runo. I love this. This is Roland. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience just like the babies did on their Ooh, no. Ooh, no. Ors. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. Aww. I I you know, Nathan sends me this message last night where he's like, did you read Valkyries yet? It was such a good ending. And I'm like, I can't wait to finish and read it because I wind up having a busy week and, you know, school starting. So I kind of been putting off reading this issue, The Mighty Valkyries number five, written by Torin Grunbeck and Jason Aaron with art by Matea de Luis with incredible letters by VC's Joe Sabino, right? I'd been putting it off because I wasn't ready to say goodbye. And I also felt like there were way too many storylines to close out. But it turns out as long as you have a giant wolf, everything's <laughs> fine <laughs> is it though well kyle that's actually a great question to ask you now i know that as one of our resident thor bros right yes. you are one of the guys who is most invested in the great world of asgard we had such an incredible time talking mm-hmm. about jane over in the pages of thor and loki double trouble how have you been feeling about this series as a whole now that you're jumping back in for the last issue i really liked it a lot the split storyline at the beginning was a little confusing but having everything come together really worked well. Even the explanation of what Moore's actual purpose was going to be in the storyline. And it, it was like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. No, I genuinely really... Moore is such an interesting character. Not only do we have an incredible non-binary character running around the title who plays into a bigger picture of Asgardian mythology... But, you know, I kept joking early on that Moore was kind of like wet in a Tom Hiddleston way, that way that Tom Hiddleston always looks like he either just got out of the gym or is always a little sweaty, you know what (laughs) I mean? And so Moore kind of, I guess, inherited that from their father. And it's, (laughs) you know, one of those situations where I didn't know what to expect from Moore as a character, but what I got was truly enchanting. Now, Jonah, I dragged you into this because I wanted you to fall in love with my precious Jane, and I feel like you've at least been given a pretty decent understanding of the way as guardians play in the marvel universe how do you feel about this title looking back on at this point nine issues of valkyrie adventures 
Yes, uh, I am very familiar with the way Asgardians play. Throwback to that one time when Enchantress was considered Dazzler's arch nemesis because she yes. was prettier than her and she sang better than her. Wait, no, Dazzler sang better, but Enchantress was prettier. I thought, it was, yeah, well, that's how, that's how Dazzler got the job at the at the roller disco. It was something, something of the. Uh, it, I'm gonna write a whole thesis on why Dazzler failed. But well, let's, let's, just, like, let's just take one second, though. I'm really glad you brought up Dazzler because I think one of the true failings of Dazzler as a series, in a way that this series is able to thrive, is that there was a time where, when men sat down to write comic women characters, their method of creating a narrative was what petty thing can they squabble about? It was literally who's prettier. You know, Enchantress is a goddess level sorceress who can go toe-to-toe with people like Doctor Strange and she can ensorcel Thor till he's nothing but a big bulbous hammer and like she does these sorts of big over-the-top universe fuckery you know Kyle you are in the middle of the Matt Fraction run so I know yep. you are in the middle of some weird fucking enchantress fuckery oh yeah right? there was there was definitely some bizarre enchantress stuff going up against the all-mother yeah that that was that was a, a period <laughs> so what is she doing getting all sorts of excuse me but i have the better fake lashes like why is she making this so petty when we have a title like this now where there are so many women right there are actually no real male characters in this issue outside of craven for the most part right and the production team is unfortunately but fine enough predominantly if not all men and we have a much better story so thank you for bringing up asgardian women being petty when men wrote them in the past because it just strengthens how much better this book is than what came before uh-huh um <laughs> yes uh anyway I'll, we'll get we'll get back to the desert thesis later me and me and nathan will talk <laughs> offline Woo-hoo! these women these characters these children this was an interesting look at the, the thoughts of fate at the thoughts of how to obtain things that you did you normally wouldn't be able to and the want versus the need you look at carnilla's want for children but she can't really have that she lives in the realm of the dead you can't bring the lo- uh the living to the realm of the dead that doesn't really work you look at valkyrie who is kind of in a weird spot where she's it almost felt like this title she was longing not so much for a purpose but for a goal and what she ended up with is protecting these children having their fate intertwined which we later found out that loki intertwined themselves into this which you know classic loki things haha loki was loki being loki So I think this title was looking at everything as a whole, especially with this ending. We took a we took a very big look at the want versus the need. We also oh uh, another thing we look at is kind of Hella wanting power and how she had to face what happens when she doesn't have her power when Fafnir comes along and he's like you have no you have no power here. I every time you bleed I get more powerful and she's like damn look at all these skelly boys. I mean, it's perfect time for it's it's Halloween season. So Nathan, you know, this has been such a journey for us. I've been like, you're going to love Thor. And you're like, I know I'm going to love Thor, but let me come to Thor on my own. And I was like, okay, have you started loving Thor yet? And you were like, Jesus Christ, I guess we're going to put Thor on the show. So now I've dragged you into Thor. I didn't drag you at all. You were super excited. But one of the things that's so crazy about this is we still haven't covered a Thor title together. Instead, we're taking a look at the Thor universe from a side perspective. I know you're a guy who has a lot of love for classic 
classic Marvel, but something that you also stand so heavily is that 70s and 80s sense of wonderment magic and growing Marvel lineage, right? The 70s and 80s were all about adding these other Asgardian characters. And this title celebrated so many of the characters from the era you loved. What was it like getting to dial into this retro experience? I feel like there's been a lot more books in a tone that you've particularly been looking for lately. And this really fits that tone. It has been really nice to see that tone come back into the books that that really fun campy one like you know like almost one note kind of tone but they've they've added layers to it and they've also taken away a lot of the problematic stuff so that i'm like super grateful for the amazing thing is that we're getting these stories and we're not getting them like we mentioned in that dazzler series which i should love but is obviously written by a, a man who thinks that women need to be pandered to in books to try to create a girl character a girl book air quote that's totally air quote because you know they, that's what they're going for that's what they're that's what they were creating back then and it really came off as is awful and pandering this kind of thing is definitely more of a empowering kind of take in on things and, and you're right this is a book that's got a lot of a lot of strong women characters a lot of strong women characters that are very much tied to that era of storytelling but they are they are taking control they're not the damsel in distress they are they are the book they're not the guest star in their own book so that i love and i love i just i love everything about it we got a big skelly fight with like a big skelly dragon and big skeletons and like he lives over there like oh no my wife she's gonna die it's i know after last issue i know we all said and i particularly was wondering this how they're gonna wrap it up so succinctly i I think is it a perfect wrap up no but i think a lot of the threads got pulled and i'm very satisfied with the ending because of it and anytime you can just do a cheap shot to take out Craven the Hunter, I'm there. Yeah, I would like to point out that Craven fell, which makes that one panel before he gets hit in the head by Loki, Craven's last stand. Oh. <laughs> God, I'm going to hell. So I really enjoyed this issue. One of the things that we had joked about extensively throughout this series was that we're like, um, how are these two stories ever going to line up? There's just way too much going on for us to realistically be able to just hand wave anything and assume that the storylines are going to twine back together. But I think that was even kind of the magic of this title. One of the things that I perhaps didn't love about the final issue, to be really honest, is I felt like Jane didn't really have a spot in the final issue. I also felt perhaps like Runa didn't have a spot in the final issue. In so many ways, this final issue was about closing out Hela's story. Now, Jason Aaron is a really patient writer. And I say patient without any irony, because, you know, I'm a huge Jason Aaron fan, but we joke on other shows, other segments, that we have reached a point with Jason Aaron that, you know, we sometimes recognize that in order for him to keep the fever pitch that he moves his stories at, we kind of have to allow for, like, bigger-than-life things to happen out of nowhere just because, right? And I feel as though this story required a lot of the magic of Jason Aaron to be suspended, right? In a world where I'm used to these bigger-than-life Jason Aaron stories, where all of a sudden Moon Knight is like, I'm Moon Knight and the Phoenix and Doctor Strange and I'm your <laughs> man and I'm actually here to uh, tell you guys you won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes! Here's the giant check! Right? Like he, He's actually calling you to get hold of you about your car warranty. Oh my god, I... 
it's him? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's him. <laughs> so I really feel as though with this title, my my realization is that so much of what Aaron was doing had to be kind of chambered away into pieces due to the format that it was all released. After the end of his Thor run, which concluded with King Thor, we got Valkyries, which was supposed to be 12 issues. And I said in a recent episode, it always shocks me that Valkyries isn't 12 issues. And I couldn't quite figure out why. And then I did a little bit more research. Valkyries was 12 issues. Issues 11 and 12 were canceled due to the pandemic and sales. So it then relaunched as part of King in Black with that four-issue miniseries. But there were an issues 11 and 12 of Valkyries solicited back when it was Jane Foster Valkyrie way back in volume one. So I feel as though this series suffered from a lot of the railroading of kind of the pandemic era and event era that Marvel has been subject to the last few years. Jonah, how have you felt about the narrative pacing of the characters throughout this title. Did you also feel like Jane and Runa took a backseat for Hela, Carnilla, and more in the final issue? Or did you feel that it balanced out just fine? I think maybe the conundrum comes from this is much more of a conflict between Hela and Carnilla that Runa and Jane got brought into unwillingly and unknowingly due to their duties as being Valkyries, as opposed to them having an actual agency in the story. Of I feel like... They were more the vehicles for the story as opposed to being passengers in the story, if that makes sense. They're not really participating in the story that is of their title. This isn't about Jane or Runa because they're not important. The more important parts of the story is between Carnilla and Hela. Jane and Runa kind of got put to the sideline towards the end when that story between the two, you know, goddesses of the dead had to wrap up their story. I think that one of the things that we frequently find ourselves with is a need to try and balance the number of things going on in these 22-page mini-adventures. You know, we're always writing towards a trade these days. There's really no way to forget that trade writing is the deal. But these individual narratives, these 22-page funny books, need to be engaging enough that they bring us back the next month. And I feel like in an effort to create enough engaging characters, and to really see, as you put it, you know, the big scale of these goddesses of the dead, to see them thrive, I do feel that the scale, I mean, it probably just needed another issue or something for me where I maybe would have been happier. Maybe this one could have been double-sized. I don't know. Kyle, how do you feel about the pacing in all this? I definitely agree that the movement between the previous issue and this issue was very rapid. It felt unnaturally escalated a bit, especially just bringing everybody together with like, Loki teleporting more to hell that that just felt odd. I really love something that you said about how it all felt like the movement between the two issues felt a little funny because I feel having lost the dual narrative art style mm. immediately made this one feel jarring. Yes. That is so, yes. I was going to say, I miss that Erica D'Urso art in this. And like, it, it, it's, I feel kind of bad for them because they, they did the whole run and then bam, last issue. They're like, haha, we don't need you this issue. Sorry. And I wonder if maybe that was an intentional decision. Maybe they 
they said we don't need two artists on this last couple of pages. I don't know, but I definitely felt worse for having lost the dual artistry because this was still a dual story. And even if I felt that perhaps the pacing was a little uneven, I did feel when I got to the end that for the most part, other than, and I'll be honest, not really caring about these kids, no offense. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, oh, good kids. Fuck them kids. Uh, yeah, well, not exactly like, you know, sell them back to the Asgardian hell devils, but like, <laughs> right. this was definitely a situation where I was like, why these kids? I don't, I don't know why. You know, and like to bring up a random different thing, one of the things that I love about Mark Wade's Daredevil is the purple children. They are one of the best ideas in the history of Daredevil. If you took the time to introduce me to the purple children, I would be really annoyed with you and I would have feel like I would have felt like you really missed the point of the purple children. What a bad move. But here, I'm like, these are little gods. I wanna know more. Oh, and you know who else got no time this issue? Mr. Horse! Oh, yeah, I know. He just what's got, up with that? He got like a panel where they're calling him cow instead of horse. Okay, I but that was the best panel ever. Friend. The other thing that this issue managed to give me that I was, I guess, impressed by, but maybe shocked by, was no additional guest stars. I'm not saying I needed more guest stars, but I will be honest. I was really surprised Thor didn't appear at all. Mm. How do you guys feel about this intentional effort? To craft a Jane Foster narrative that doesn't involve Thor in any meaningful way. I'm 100% cool with it. I think that as Valkyrie, she is perfectly capable of carrying her own book. And she doesn't need Thor to come in and rescue. Oh, I apparently agree. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently? Did I say apparently? You did. I, I aggressively agree. But apparently I agree. You're like, apparently I agree. Again. Huh. Okay. Sure. You want to try that again? Yeah. No, I'm leaving that in. Are That's you kidding? Awesome. That is awesome. Um. Someone else reply, please. Okay, cool. I think the lack of Thor in this issue is amazing. I think the lack of the presence of Thor overall in the book. I mean, he showed up in one issue. He was sort of like the cameo guest shot. Like, hey, we can only afford you for two days of filming. So that's all we're going to pay you for. I think it really sells the story and lets Jane and Aruna shine as characters on their own without having to have the backup from the king. So, you know... Obviously, Loki kind of helped save the day a little bit, but only just because he teleported his grandson in and grandchildren in. And they they were the ones who really helped save the day more. So I'm digging the fact that Thor was less involved in it. And it really let all of Asgard shine. And it really didn't need guest guest stars in this one because it was so jam-packed with uh, heavy hitter all-stars from Asgard. I don't think the lack of Thor, or honestly, even the inclusion of Thor, would have changed this title. I don't think Jane needs Thor right now. It's not that important. I think developing the relationship in different ways would be interesting, but right now, Jane can stand on her own as a character without the need of a man to help guide her character growth. She's doing just fine on her own. I do think it's important that, especially if you're going to give her a 
title where the title is named after her it's important that she kind of be the star it didn't really feel like jane got to shine a lot in this book i think in the first couple of issues especially when she was chatting with more those were the most interesting conversations that came out of this title that i wish we got more of haha but I don't disagree that Jane can't do this. And it's there is something to be said about any kind of creativity and any kind of media creation when you as a company and you as the creator show that you love and care about a character, the fans will follow. It's You don't have to always do the most popular characters because you think that's what's going to get you what you need. Sure, you might make it might be more of a safety thing, but you everybody who is a fan will care about who you tell us to care about. Yeah, you know, no, no. that's a brave statement. I don't disagree, but I do feel like some people almost purposefully resist liking things just to be contrary. So I completely agree with you. Fans should just listen. And then I also get their fear as writers that people are going to be like, but why? I mean, just look at me as a teenager where I refused to watch anything, any quote unquote popular TV show. There were popular musicals that I just wouldn't listen to because like they're popular. I can't like them. Those are mainstream and normie. I'm different. And it's like, I'm an adult now. And I'm like, no, that's kind of stupid. Some things are popular for a reason. You're allowed to like things that are popular. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that's something that I feel like people often miss out on how it's, you know, I, I'm trying to find the right way to put it. I don't think it's cool to not like things just to not like them, but I really do understand that when you're told to like something, it can make it very hard to like, especially if you interact with the material differently, right? So I, I do get it. I didn't like Deadpool anywhere near as much as I do now until well after his success began to fade. So like, I do get it. Oh yeah, I'm like that all the time with stuff too. Like you try to tell me like, hey, you really, really need to love this. And I'm like, why? No. I'm like, everybody loves that. That's basic. And then you, then you come back a few years later and you're like, oh, I guess I should have liked that when it was coming out. <laughs> no one likes to be told things. That's why you have to do subliminal messaging. Yeah. One of the things I found the most exciting about the end of this title was that they gave Jane and Runa sort of a focal purpose going forward. I feel like Jane is going to watch after these gods and Runa can kind of Valkyrie a bit more. But it did make me realize something I don't care for. Did they just take a powerful female warrior and make her a mom? Um, at most, I'd say a nanny. Yeah, but yeah, like, they, they, they kind of did. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that they took Merlin and made him Mary Poppins, <laughs> but like, there is something maybe a little. Why does she need to be in charge of children? You know, you already had her be a brilliant doctor and surgeon, and now she's working with the morgue, which is fine. I don't feel like that made her less of a strong woman. You know, not having her perform surgery doesn't devalue her the way I feel taking her from the Valkyrie to, you know, Valky Poppins is kind of a downgrade. Well, Am but I it, wrong? I thought she returned the children. Yeah, I was going to say, because that, that panel in page uh, 21 of Digital it shows uh, their their real mom is there, and I think Jane's gonna have to help look over because they're still magical and they're still you know fantastic babies. But I think the real mom is watching them oh, over. Yeah, again. I didn't. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean like I think she's about to full time hang up her. You know, um, her. I can't Valkyrie Gerflugelhorn things. You know, <laughs> I don't think she's she's putting down the helm. It just 
for someone whose job as Valkyrie is to ferry souls of great warriors to the land of the dead to hear your new job is watch after these little kids, it just feels perhaps like a pivot on responsibilities that falls a little bit more across female lines in terms of tropey storytelling than perhaps I would have liked. I think that part of what eases that feeling a bit is that Loki also put a protective charm over them so it's not like she has to spend her every waking moment making sure that they're safe. She's still able to do her normal Valkyrie duties and she's connected to these children through her hair woven into the threads of fate but she's not 100% responsible for their safety. Jane Foster showed up and said new weave, new job, new woman (laughs) i mean when she transforms she does get a a new hairdo the last page of this book filled me with more hope than i expected now i came into this title expecting jane to have more of sort of the the sadness that had been plaguing her in the other aaron books which you know you can hear my opinion on literally every issue of jane foster at this point i am endlessly positive on this title but it did feel like she was constantly sad right and i expected more of that pervasive sadness but instead what i got was a complex narrative about interwoven fate and that really is such a great way to think about this title it's about the way all of these threads have come together over the years And the, what I'm sure is an editorial note at the top of the last page is what a beautiful goodbye. The issue closes a chapter for Jane and Runa, but the Valkyries, Valkyries will return. And sooner than you expect, keep a sharp eye, true believers. Now, I just want to point out that I constantly say our sharp eyed readers, because that's actually a Stanley-ism. So I really love that the editors here kept in that Stanley charm. It just makes it magical for me, right? And in the meantime, get your Jane Foster fix in a another Jason Aaron extravaganza. The afterlife's greatest protector joins Earth's Mightiest Heroes in Avengers 750 on sale in November. Okay, I have... Okay, I wanted to send you that as soon as I saw that on like the other day, and I was like, oh, I wonder if Nico's read this. I was like, oh my god, he's gonna be so excited. I'm trying to figure out what's happening here. Is this because She-Hulk is getting her own book, and Thor is so busy in the Donny Cates run that perhaps Valkyrie is going to step in and play a dual role for a little bit? Uh, are we about... Because, I mean, that's a power couple that I don't want to lose, but, you know, are, are we going to lose that power couple? And I... So, wait, we're getting her in 750 before both Valkyries show back up? I am overwhelmed by the potentiality of this final page. How do you guys feel about the potentiality of this incredible tease on the last page? I'm, I'm glad that she's going to continue to make appearances, but I haven't really been reading Avengers. I, th- I, think I'm, I think I'm only in the third trade of, of Jason Aaron's run, so I'm, I'm really far behind. So I, I really don't have that, that connection to what's going on in their storyline to really be that excited. I am super pumped because, oh my God, that book is amazing. And, you know, just to have, just to have a Valkyrie added to that crew, even if Jane doesn't like join the main team and she's almost like support, like maybe Echo and Starbrand have been right now, like 
just like that's a massive fucking amount of power like you've got you've got so many forces of life and death on that same team You're, it's just like amazing and and gosh dang it i really i like i need another valkyrie story and i need like runa to come back because i've fallen in love with runa and runa cannot be forgotten please 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 Wait, please do, please do you hear that in the what in the in the di- somewhere out there a valkyrie horse just got its wings yes because somebody said the magic words we need more runa and i just feel like it was necessary to mention wait 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 i'm really like now i want to go to asgard and and, like not that you can just to hear like the horses make that sound all the time Uh, I really want to know if all horses in Asgard evidently sound like broken <laughs> megaphones. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Follow that up, Jonah. Wah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Waluigi has joined the show, everybody. All right, Waluigi, talk to me. I was caught off guard by that. I didn't. I was like, do I respond as Waluigi? Should I do a Waluigi impression? Is that the time for the Waluigi impression? No. <laughs> I'm like, how do you even do it? Like, Valkyries! Like, I mean, like, <laughs> how do you even do it? I'm a gonna win. No, I'm a gonna horse. <laughs> Cow. <laughs> so, I also don't read current Avenger, so it'll be probably a while before I personally see any Valkyrie in a book. But I think that one of the best components to blending your world and creating this almost immersive world for people to jump into is having a lot of characters show up in different titles. Even if it's a brief appearance, it just helps bridge that this is a connected world and everybody's not just operating by themselves in their own separate sectors and can also be figure out like, oh, okay, they couldn't participate in this because they made an appearance here. So like they're doing something else or, you know, they're, <laughs> it, it's because, like, you know, I think about that time that Magneto took over the entirety of New York for three days and nobody did anything about that. And everyone you know, was like, yeah, that's cool. I, 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 to this day, I, to this day could spend, I could spend years studying. I think in, okay. I think in a lot of ways, Grant Morrison's new X-Men is a statement on comics that is still reverberating today. And I don't mean it in the direct ways that people, everybody sees it in house and powers. But think about how New York became an island. Think about the only way Magneto saw a possibility for mutant advancement over and over again was to purge all of the humans from an island and create a protective space that no one could enter. I am not justifying Magneto's actions, but I'm saying there is something about the fact that Krakoa is goddamn Planet X, is goddamn Eve of Destruction, is Genosha, is Krakoa, over and over, there is something that we should be considering very sinister about the Hoxpox era at all times. You know, for a mutant terrorist, sometimes Magneto was right. You know, every now sometimes. and then. Every now and sometimes. then. And that one t-shirt I have where it looks like his head is just balls. So, uh, <laughs> yes. it is a really tough helmet to draw. Because if you don't draw it just right, it looks like a dick and balls in like a magic bubble. It looks terrible. <laughs> So that's what I've been drawing my whole life, and it's just you know just Magneto's helmet, and I just haven't done it right. That's uh, yeah. I mean, I'm just always <laughs> I'm always censoring inappropriate images of genitals by drawing Magneto's helmet around them. <laughs> yeah. There's one thing that I really want to see from these stories in the future, especially if we get to feature Runa more, especially if they get to be together, is just 
what would be the different ideologies between Jane is a Valkyrie, not by the same way that Runa is. That that means to say, like, like there was a whole traditional way the Valkyries used to be picked. Like, you know, the horse used to pick them and then they used to join the sisterhood. And that that is the type of Valkyrie that Runa is. Jane had a, a magic weapon transform her into a Valkyrie. So she's Valkyrie in title and position, but not with the same magics that the other Valkyries use. Like, I'm just wondering, I want to see more of the difference between that, because I remember there was such a big deal made about when Danny Moonstar became a Valkyrie because she wasn't dead yet. And Jane's obviously not dead yet either. So I'm just like excited to see what kind of cool differences there are. You know, I actually couldn't love what you just said more. There's so many magic things going on right now in the Marvel Universe that are challenging the idea of lineage, I would love a War of the Valkyries. Not because I want Runa and Jane to go against each other, but Runa has to just be the tip of the iceberg for me in terms of classic Valkyrie lore, and I would love to see a story where Runa sides with Jane against some Valkyries that are a little bit more, drag them all to hell! And Runa's like, guys, I think humanity doesn't suck as much as it used to. Look at my friend Jane here. And they're like, mm, give us the horns. We have to go, you know, Valkyrie spear her to death. And War of the Valkyries. I'd be really into that. Ooh. Right? I want because, that. Yeah, I want it so bad. And yeah. <laughs> I want Russell Dowderman on covers. Great. Uh, Marvel. The, <gasps> oh, he could do all the different Valkyries. He could do all the different Valkyries. Oh, instead of like just different costumes. Oh my God, that's amazing, actually. Oh. Yeah, because you do with Valkyries through the ages cover. Marvel, you have to call us now. 